Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. This will include TFAST 954 to 967. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 954. Story number one. Unclean. Written by Dathwin. Galactic Gear 13.8143821201. Underscore 137. The human rubbed the toxic solvent all over its grasping appendage, waving its hands to let it evaporate. It then outstretched the appendage. According to the diplomatic reports, this was supposed to be a friendly greeting, and Slack could see that, were it not for a human performing the gesture. After all Slack had experienced, the reports he had seen, the carnage that he had witnessed directly. It wasn't friendly at all. Was threat, brazen, and callous. Slack glanced at the solvent dispenser. His cranial implant translating the text on the side. Isopropyl alcohol, 70%. The human might as well have slathered his hands in molten steel. Slack hesitated for a few moments more, waiting for the solvent to evaporate completely before extending a tentacle to grip the human's outstretched appendage. It gripped his tentacle with the hand, rigid strength belaying its hardy endoskeleton. Slack almost shrieked in fear when he felt the smooth, seamless plastic coating on his tentacle slip as he went to withdraw his tentacle before the human had released his grip. Rough, microscopic ridges on its appendages seemed to grant it an unusual grip, not unlike Slack's own suckers though the human ridges weren't prehensile. It began to speak, but Slack couldn't focus on what was being said. He only could imagine the waves of microbes being carried into the surrounding chamber by its breath. He would have to have this room vaporized and reconstructed later. He used his cranial implant to silently mark the room for quarantine. He knew he was hallucinating, but he could almost feel the microbes wiggling across his tentacle through the plastic coating where the human had gripped it. He could almost feel the virophages and spores impacting his face. It was too much. Galactic Year 13.8143821173. Commander Slack dreams of fighting space battles against pirates and rescuing enormous females were dashed 180 cycles ago when he was stationed on a backwater outpost, barely an observation site. They were 40 light years, an entire day's travel from the nearest Federation city. The only thing he battled these days was boredom. He was merely a political attaché, and his rank was little more than symbolic, but he had imagined things differently. The station itself so undermanned that he was required to fill many roles outside of his original mode of service. At one time, during the scheduled leave of the maintenance staff, he had even had been required to perform several ships of custodial duty. Finally, though, something was happening. They received a report of pirate activity. He was so excited, these chromatophores were barely under his control, flickering and slightly off-shade. They arrived at the ship emitting the distress beacon. It bore the markings of a well-known pirate fleet, they were famous for preying upon non-Federation vessels, given that they weren't yet entitled to protections of the Federal fleet. Of course, 
The fleet would always help them when they could, but their trade routes wouldn't receive official patrols and outposts until they joined. It was strange enough to hear the distress beacon from the pirate ship. Clearly, something terrible had happened. They were towing the large metal net full of scrap. A quick scan revealed it to be the remains of a ship that had been forcibly dismantled, likely to be sold as scrap metal. Digital reconstruction showed the technology to be relatively primitive. The engines would definitely earn them entry into the Federation, but everything else was laughably antiquated. Genetic weapons, no shielding of any kind, not even from particle matter during FTL travel. A regenerative memory alloy hull that was thick enough to soak up the frequent impacts with dust and debris without a breach. Otherwise, it was soft. Ionization showed that it was no match for the energy pulse arrays of the derelict pirate vessel. They hailed the pirates, thinking that maybe the new species had commandeered the vessel and were hoping to report the assault and petition for salvage rights with the appropriate authorities. That was fairly common practice. Another scan, this time for filtering for life signs. Nothing. It was abandoned. Or so they thought. The vessel still had life support, though. They dispatched a normal away team to survey the situation. Within a matter of seconds, they lost contact with the crew. The only feedback they received before the entire team went dark was in their vital monitors. Sudden increase in body temperatures and heart rate, massive drops in blood pressure. The second survey was done with drones. No amount of training or experience could prepare Slap for what he saw. The images were classified after the incident, but it would be passed around as a test of courage in the academies and fleet outposts throughout the Federation. Their flesh was decayed, but not through rot. It was like they had been dissolved. Slack's friends, another cephalopod, had been reduced to his beak, resting in a puddle of rainbow-streaked goo. All of the others had suffered similar fates. One of the hardiest species, a mammalian, was able to survive initial exposure better than the others, but not by much. Her flesh was swollen and stretched taut, her normally dense, body-wide fur now spread out far enough to reveal its shining, red-hued skin underneath. That skin was mottled, the normal dark grey interspersed with raised splotches of green and yellow. Her bloodshot eyes oozed red and black pus from the pupils. She moved, barely groaning in pain. She couldn't have heard or seen it. Her eyes were ruined and unmoving, and her ears were swollen shut. She rasped the breath, breathing, wheezing, and moist. A scan revealed her body was undergoing an extreme reaction to a biological agent. Whatever this new species was, it must have deployed some kind of biological weapon before being destroyed. A heinous crime in any civilized society, pirates or not, this was unforgivable. The onboard physician was able to consult, and thanks to the sophistication of the drone sensors, was able to come up with a diagnosis. Whatever this bioweapon was, it was far too virulent and aggressive to treat. His only prescription was severe sedation while the microbes completed their gruesome work. Being the physician, he also ordered that the ship and drones be vaporized, but only after conducting thorough scans of the microbes in questions so that the Federation could work on countermeasures, lest they fall victim to these creatures as well. 
The only problem was that it wasn't just one microbe. There were over a thousand, over one thousand species of virus, fungi, and archaea had spread throughout the ship. This was well above Slack's pay grade. He had to message HQ to find out what else he should be done. The entire time, a strange macabre sense of curiosity drove him to explore the derelict pirate vessel with a drone, surveying the putrid annihilation left behind by this mysterious new species. The orders finally came down. They were to print and deploy new drones equipped with all of the technology required to combat new biological weapons. In the meantime, they were to tow the vessel into deep space and keep a close watch over it. They deployed quarantine beacons every light year in a 10 light year radius around the vessel, and established a six ship blockade one light year past the radius. Few ships passed through this region of space, but Slack believed these measures to be more than justified. After a few days, full sequencing and analysis was complete. Slack was the only person on the station who was allowed to view any of the results, as they had been classified before they even started analysis. Even then, his access was highly restricted, only being able to read the heavily redacted version of the document. 1,049 unique species from 19 unique phyla detected, 709 bacterial, 79 archaeal, 91 fungal, and 170 viral species. No signs of genetic alteration in any detected species. Those three lines were all he was allowed to read. The last one echoed in his mind. Every time he had a moment of peace, sat down for a meal, closed his eyes, those three lines would shoot through his mind. The last one, over, and over, and over. No signs of genetic alteration in any detected species. They were natural. Whatever creature, whatever horrors these full pirates had come across, harbored the entire planet's worth of microbes. Naturally. Galactic here, 13.814382120 underscore 137. Are you okay? The human asked, a look of concern on its face. Its face, crawling with sickness and disease and contagion and infestation. Plague. Contamination, taint, rot, decay, putrefaction, death. He was looking into the face of death. He had shaken hands with death. Ambassador Slack, are you okay? Death repeated, the look of concern on its bare, colorless face growing into worry. Slack's tentacle twitched, and he reached out towards the dispenser held by the death's attendant. Would it be, be rude of me, me to, to use that as, as well? End of story. Story number two. Strike from the Shadow, written by Arcalian. It is a sobering moment when your race steps beyond its own world and into the greater galaxy. We humans thought that we were great warriors, vicious and terrible on the battlefield. And it is true that we are capable of killing and terrible atrocities. But the terrible Zerellians are greater warriors than us, at least on a one-to-one -one basis. Their technology was superior in some ways, lesser in others. They aren't other beings, sentient or not. You can't call it a sport, not exactly. 
not like the old aristocracy back on Earth. It's more than a sport to them. Nor is it like ancient hunters who did so to survive. It's more like a cross between a religious experience and what some people call a lifestyle choice. Their entire civilization is built around it. Maybe that's what happens when the hunter-gatherers never settle down for agriculture and follow that path to the stars instead. We don't know. After the first raids on our outer colony worlds, we thought that we were ready. We met them with two full fleets and many smaller fighters. In space and in the air, we fared well, especially in the air. But on the ground, the Zeralbians beat us three to one. We thought our use of drones might give us the edge there, as the Zeralbians didn't have any. But no, the Zeralbians simply swatted them out of the air. We thought they were built too low to the ground for that, but we had underestimated their agility. But we learned from that experience. We learned quickly. We couldn't outfight them one-on-one. -on -one. We weren't big and bad warrior race of the galaxy, or even in our own galactic arm. But while our pride was stung, this only served to motivate us. Instead of emulating the warrior cultures of our science fantasy stories, we emulated the sneaky, assassin-hit-and-run types instead. The ones you'd never see coming. Until it's too late. We implemented stealth technology quickly. It didn't take long. They never knew our ships were there until after the first shot was fired. And the survivors heard, over their communicators, the terrible sound of our laughter which we were deliberately cultivated to sound like every melodramatic villain ever. <laughs> the Zerelbians had thought us easy prey at first. Oh, sure, we put up a fight, but they'd seen that before. Then after we switched tactics, they realized their mistake. They realized that we aren't the hunters that chase you down on the plains like them. No, we are ambush predators. The bit-trapped spiders waiting in the den for the foolish alien who wanders by. They don't call us dishonorable or cowards. And while they still hate us, it's a respectful, wary hatred of a worthy foe. Then we expanded into the galaxy at large and met other races, many of whom were loosely allied against the Zalvarians' hunts. The Goblin, the Actoran, and the Vomali... We didn't need to go to war against them to see that the Galburn and the Yuktoran, at least, were superior to us one-on-one. -on -one. But they seemed only to want to fight wars defensively. Oh, the Yuktoran had fought wars of conquest in the past, but only against non-sentient life on the worlds they wanted to colonize. And there was something to be said for purely defensive warfare, and it saved many a nation throughout human history. But it's nice to know, at least, that should it ever come to that, humanity won't have that limitation. Even so, it is clear that we should stick to surprise attacks from stealth. Even the Zeralbians, who have known us the longest, seem unable or willing to change their tactics on that front. It a fix, as the French call it. All the better for us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 955 Story Double One Jumped, written by Belly Master A quiet scuffing alerted wary ears. Nondescript featureless, 
The alleyway was nothing more than an aborted dream of a dying neighborhood. Kron stepped out from a gap between two abandoned kiosks to block the intruder. Kron was a joven, hard-limbed and wrapped in lean muscle. The joven race was one of the few that could, on average, outclass a human in physical fight. Hardened plates grew on the faces of their thin limbs, a naturally occurring defense against the eroding qualities of the home environment's harsh winds. Longer muscle connecting points throughout their skeleton heightened strength above that of a human, and their endurance was acceptable. Their bodies, when viewed head-on, were remarkably slender, but the moment they turned to the side, they became apparent that the aerodynamic development had suggested growth forward and backward instead of out. Kron tapped a cloven hoof on the ground to be sure the human was aware of her presence. The human, a very thick figure with a squat face and a round figure, stopped moving and looked at her. The sounds of the city echoed through the alleyways as they stared at one another. Kron pointed towards the human's bag. The human shook his head. She crouched into a ready stance and the human pulled off the bag and set it in between the two kiosks. This one looked a bit heavier than the average human. But it didn't matter. The Jovian attacked. Three harsh blowing kicks followed by the side arm movement. Every attack was in line with the bone reinforcement of the Jovian's body, putting all the weight and strength into the blows into the reinforced edge two fingers wide. Two of the kicks went wide. The third met its mark. The human keeled over as if struck by a pipe. Missing the cider meant for its hand. The human grabbed the Joven's leg and twisted his hips, throwing her into the wall. Kron took the blur in silence. The alleyway repeated sounds of heavy breathing and scuffling back to them as they recircled, fainting and closing in. The human attacked, already favoring his left leg. He pulled forward and rushed the Joven backwards, trying to drive them into the more public street. The Joven executed a half-turn and swung down with the right limb. Only the human's forearm, thrown up an instinct, saved his vertebra from being shattered. The human gritted his teeth and adopted a closed stance, arms and legs tight in towards the body, and the Joven attacked with a series of blows, driving her limbs into those of the humans with a force twice as that that the human could muster. The human was trying to deflect the blows as it inched forward towards her, Step by step, but the damage it was receiving was significant. The Joven whirled, chopping her arm through the air towards the human's head like a propeller blade. In a split second, she found herself flying through the air until she hit the ground and bounced up, breathless. The human came at her from the side and drove two knuckles into the center of her upper arm. It was followed up by two more sharp strikes, aimed at both the head and the thigh. Only the thigh hit connected before the Joven turned to once more face her opponent. They were tiring, both of them, but the energy remained high. The Joven circled back to again present her defensive sight to the human, while the human tried to outmaneuver her and gain her sight again. The human's forearms were already starting to bruise, and he was sporting a significant limp. They closed in again, more mindful in deliberately trying to harm one another. Gone was the speed and the impulse that came at the beginning of a fight. Now was the strategy. 
Blow for counterblow, they went on. The Joven landing strikes more often than not, while the human missed several times. The Joven backed off to take a breath, but the human stuck to her with a stubbornness. He knew that if he ceased moving, stiffness would take a hold of his limbs, and he'd be out of the fight. The Joven thrashed, peppering his upper body with blows. She fell hard when the human swept out her legs and tried to grab her. She spun across the ground and stumbled to her feet. She couldn't let the human get a firm grip on her. When they closed again, the Joven landed a meaty blow to the human's limping leg that sent him crumpling to the ground. She took the opportunity to back up and breathe, unfamiliar with the exertion lasting this long. The human gasped and hit the ground with a thud, but his eyes never left those of the Joven. He dragged himself up and came towards her again. Then she took halting steps over to where the human had left his bag and reached for it. She didn't have time to react when the hands grabbed hold of her and flung her into the kiosk. She folded down onto the ground, thrashing blindly, and the hands found her again. The joven crashed bodily into the old stall and tumbled to the ground with a grunt. The human limped towards the joven with a deadness of motion, his left leg dragging behind him. She tried to stand, but the debris under her betrayed her footing. The human reached down for her, heedless of the strike she rained down on the head and shoulders. Then she was lifted over his head with a grunt, frailing before flung directly into the ground. The joven felt one of her protective bone plates crack. She struck out blindly and landed a lucky hit on the human, sending him to the ground beside her. The joven tried to crush his throat, but he caught her forearm and twisted. The donkey motion disrupted the streamlined musculature of her body and caused immense pain. She didn't make a sound. They both rolled to their feet again, though it took several seconds. Weary and injured, the human put up his hands again and started towards her again, somehow still able to move, a glutton for pain. The joven shook her head and lowered her limbs. She was done. The human wasn't. He caught her with two enormous blows that sent her to the ground, falling over himself in the process. But again, he started to rise. Kron crawled away, as quickly as she could, knowing that if she took two or three more hits like that, that she was done for. She limped to her feet and staggered out of the alley into the more public area, chancing a glance behind her. There stood a silhouette of a human, limping, Unbroken, having taken far more damage than he should have been able to. But he was still standing. End of story. Story number two. You need a human on board, written by Glitchkey. You should have a human on your ship. Several, if possible. It doesn't matter if there's some sort of fundamental incompatibility between species. They can smooth that over. It doesn't matter if you don't like them. You need a human on your ship. Everyone does. Ask any statistician or logistician, any military official, scientist or mathematician, and they'll agree. You need a human or civil on your ship. Humans can smooth over incompatibilities. They can make it work, but a ship with a human is statistically more likely to survive than one without. Yes, they're weak. Yes, they have terrible manners. We're all aware that they're not the brightest stars in the nebula. 
but humans make a ship more likely to survive and thrive. Humans can make anything work. We've been trying to figure out how they do it since first contact. We still don't know any more now than we did then. There are too many verifiable stories of ships beyond saving making it to the end of the journey because of human crew members. Patches with no integrity, repairs with no function. As soon as they're no longer necessary, there's absolutely no evidence showing that they can do what they did. But the ships made it back to the berth. You need a human on board. Somehow, reality bends to their whims, to their unwillingness to simply let things happen. Somehow, the humans make things better. Some of them call it luck. Others call it jury-rigging. It's all the same. Humans don't operate the same way that we do, and we all benefit from it. What they do is, simply put, not possible. I'm sure you've seen the occasional strange ship at birth, a freighter that somehow limped in missing half their hull, or a fighter that came in with no source of propulsion, a cruiser with no life support, and a living crew. Humans, all of them. You need a human on your ship, because to not have one leaves you vulnerable. Yes, you can still die if you have one, but somehow they make hopeless scenarios shrink into the distance and fade away. The universe itself seems to bend over backwards to please them. There isn't any other way to say this. If you have a ship, you need a human on board. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 956. Story number one. We leave none behind, not even the dead. Written by Cal Vines. Dog tags. They were a uniquely human concept. When they first joined the intergalactic war, most combatants thought it some sort of trap. That was until the humans began to ask for them back, along with the bodies, if we had them. A way to remember their fallen soldiers, have something left of them. Like most things humans, it was strangely beautiful, and honorable for most even causing some other nations to begin to adopt the practice. Some others didn't adopt it, however, and also didn't return the dog tags themselves. They soon learned the most important lessons of humans. They will leave none behind, not even their dead. This ship slid into real space as it got into system, softly heading towards the planet, dropping off cargo it held. The large cargo ship landed with a soft puff of dirt and debris. Large freezer boxes were taken off and moved into the facility, still visible on the necks. The small pieces of metal adorned the dead. Most put into storage, as a few of the bodies were taken out as tests were performed on them. The dog tags were those taken away, were taken off and put into storage containers. The workers left the room. As visible to no one, a small yellow dot appeared for a moment at the base of a dog tag, as if it were left in a slightly warmer part of the base. The signal was received. Seven or so pings at the same place as the soldier behind the monitor scrambled for his communicator, sending the information to the higher-ups, and then routing instructions to the ship captains. Bring our people home! 
There were five captains picked for the job, mostly annoyed at being awoken. Then reading the message, rousing their crew, the ships were silently loaded up and sent off to the system within a couple hours. A process normally taking a little under a day. Not for the lack of readiness, the humans on board were more than ready. A loud tear was almost audible as five ships crashed into the system, precious time taken to figure out what they were. This was a secret deep in the heart of the Kozod's territory. It was nearly impossible for anyone to come here, much less know how to get here, even. Then a small sound arose from the storage, a shaken worker being prodded in to figure out what it was. Coming across the small piece of metal as he brought it out for all to listen, Dear fallen siblings, we are here, was heard from the small device. Then hell erupted in the skies. The darkened security ships, mostly there for the accidental intrusions from their own citizens, were woefully outmatched. Ships dozens of times their size, leaving no room for escape between precise lines of concentrated fire. A few distress signals barely making it up before being brutally cut off. The small formations of soldiers and equipment on the surface of the planet were immediately obliterated from the skies. Anything even resembling the form of defense was hit with layers of fire from the sky, different layers of bombs crashing upon them. Large ships, around the size of the one cargo ship, now laying in a flaming ruin on the landing pad next to them, as soldiers poured out of it, marching from the ships as they poured into the vicinity, Weapons like shrapnel grenades being used with prejudice as every room and floor that put up resistance was quickly silenced. This squad came across a small lab on the way to the signal origins, ignoring the cowering scientists as they cleared the room and moved into the clean chamber, finding on the table a short man, pieces of his body missing, one of the soldiers grabbing the nearest scientists and lifting them up. Did you do this? She asked in a cracked, angry voice. It was on orders. We were told, the alien began, as the other arm of the woman put a pistol to the stomach and fired, the other soldiers giving the same greeting to the other scientists in the room. The first soldier moving back into the room and closing the fallen soldier's eyes as I loaded him into the freezer unit and began moving him back to the ship. The ships left the atmosphere leaving a small clearing where the bodies of the planet's soldiers were left covered, rubble and scarred earth all that was the remaining of the rest of the planet. The fleet blasted into system, following the trail left by distress signals as they navigated through tens of floating empty ships. Finally, they arrived in orbit of the planet, the sheer destruction too much to land for most ships within the fleet. Shuttles being dispatched as one landed on a small field, holding the bodies of a couple hundred security and staff stationed. Behind each of the bodies were a small stick holding up their helmets or headwear. A small carved stone sitting in front of all of them. We will never leave our own. End of story. Story number two. I can't speak for those who died before. Written by Glitchkey. Normally, I said, as I kicked the door down in a shower of sparks and shrapnel, I would recite a litany of names right now. 
A flash of metal shone ahead of me, automated defenses of whirring to life after centuries rotting in their casings. But you've taken more names than I have breath. I raised my hand, and a sphere of crimson warded off the hail of bullets, bits of wall falling to the ground around me. The worlds that I've taken. The dry voice spoke, garbled as the speakers sparked and died. That's what the others normally do. I grabbed a robot, a portable little gunbot, and shoved it through the wall. No, I don't have that right. I can't speak for those who have died before. A knife sentinel was next, followed by a cleaning droid that had the misfortune of being bought by the wrong owner. Laughter crackled in and out with the flickering lights. And yet you challenge me. Door slammed open, the hall darkened by shadows beyond. More robots pulled through, sentinels and watchdogs and rattling handcrafted piles of scrap. You will die here. All right, I said. A flick on my wrist and they all fell slack. The air around me practically dancing to the interference. Your citadel will be my grave after I've done what I've come for. They crunched and squealed as I waded through, heedless of their presence and its inability to slow me down or upset my footing. The speakers were silent for a moment. The crackling of electricity, my only company, as I trekked through the winding corridors. Worlds will burn for this, I chuckled. They'll burn anyways. I punched through the wall next to me as the hall shuddered and went dark. A thunderous crash reverberated from every surface. A collapse far behind me. And what do you hope to accomplish? The voice was quick enough, higher. I could hear his shallow breathing if I stopped long enough to listen. The goal I've worked on for longer than I can rightly remember. One I took upon myself when you sacked my home. I tore open the door, and there it was in front of me. There he was in front of me. What are you? he asked. He leaned back from his desk, screens dark and flickering along the wall in front of him. Once... I would have given you a name. I grabbed him, dragged him from his seat, and threw him to the floor. I gave that up with my humanity. I stomped and crushed him through the deck plating into the corridor below. He leaned against the wall behind him, a smile playing on the edge of his lips. That won't work, you know. Grabbing his hand, I dragged him up and stared into his eyes. I lied earlier. I can't speak for the world's. Oh, he smirked. I've killed so many. Refresh my memory. I speak of Earth, still born in a cradle. I shoved his head against the wall, cracking the reinforced hull plating from floor to ceiling. I speak of the Shadowbone Alrun, who mourn their stolen light. I started walking, his face leaving a deep gouge mark in our passage. I speak for the Clipford Owl, skies blackened. And listless. I turned him around to face me as we walked. The lights continued to flicker off as much as on. I speak for the thousands of worlds, uncounted dead, more civilizations than I have years. I wrenched open yet another door and threw him through. I stopped for a moment, 
inspecting the equipment inside. You are the one thing the entire galaxy of petulant, bickering children could agree upon. Nodding, I stepped inside and shoved the warped door back into its frame. He eyed the empty shelves, the turrets, and its controls. I made a costly bargain long ago. Because of it, they've all helped me in some way. I shoved him into the empty barrel and slammed the door shut. He could still hear me. I'd make sure of it. I have more technology packed into me than a capital warship. All for this task. His laughter echoed through the edges of the malformed cover. This can't kill me any more than anything else. I know that, I said. I poked and prodded the controls, aiming for nothing in particular. I smiled as an empty patch behind Andromeda came into view. But I know something you've long since forgotten. Oh, what is that? I chuckled as I smashed the launch button. In space, no one can hear you scream. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 957. All Systems Science University, 825, written by Apophis Pegasus. On the borders of Eurasian space. No matter where, what, or who you are in the galaxy, hostage negotiations rely on three very simple questions. What do the hostage takers want? What are they willing to do to the hostages to get it? And how do you make sure that the hostages get out safe? In this particular case, what the hostage takers of the ASSU science vessel Tensor wanted was simple. Money. An old classic. They were pirates, after all. What are they willing to do to get it? Anything it took, generally. How would the hostages be saved? Well, that was the five billion credit question, wasn't it? Fifty million credits, no less! The large, battle-scarred Verasian paced back and forth in front of the tensor's viewscreen. On the other end, on a ship a few light minutes out, sat several hostage negotiators. A member of the Far Asian High Treasury, a heavily armed tactical response team, and a priestess, just in case. Ma'am, such a large sum of money cannot be moved immediately, the treasurer replied. We must have more time. You've had more than enough time! The treasurer drew herself up to a full, albeit unimpressive, for a Far Asian height. Madame, we have to institute an emergency requisition. File taxes on that requisition. Submit an HWUD form in a high treasury. Institute an emergency transport order. Convert the credits into hard currency. Transport that hard currency to liftoff. File the emergency resource transportation request. Ratify that request. As she droned on, the pirate captain looked more and more confused with each passing item of the list. Finally, she had enough and cut her off. Fine! Um, how much time do you need? Half a day or thereabouts, beamed the treasurer. Thank you for your... The vid screen went back, cutting off the remaining words she had to say. Hmm. One of the hostage negotiators turned to the treasurer with a worried look on her face. Dear, you, you think it, it, it'll take long? Spirit, no. The money's ready. I just thought that I'd buy you all more time. Grinning, the negotiator opened up her mouth to reply. 
but was abruptly interrupted by a ruckus just outside the door. Move! Move, you giant furry bundles of militarism! Those are my students there! Move, I say! The negotiation room door slid open with a slight hiss, and in trundled the headmaster of all systems science university. A portly Trevelyan strode to the back of the room and glared at the assembled team. Where are they? I want to see them. One of the negotiators made a clowning gesture as she attempted to placate the quivering headmaster. All right, all right, calm down. We'll, uh, we've tried to get the captain on the line. Somewhat mollified, the headmaster sat down in a chair, massaging the base of his siphons. Looking up, he stared imploringly at the negotiator. How, um, how bad is it? The negotiator fixed a tense look on her face as she replied. Not good. These pirates, they're a particularly nasty bunch. Even if we give them the money, they'll probably decide to terminate the hostages. Leave no evidence. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. We'll do our best that we can. The headmaster massaged harder, groaning in frustration. Currently, his tenure was far too active for his liking. First, the humans. Now this. It was too much. The beep and the comms unit caused everyone to look up. The pirate captain was calling back. Her snarling visage filled one half of the view screen, with the other half filled with the varied huddled forms of students, sequestered in what looked like the ship's laboratory complex. The students looked unharmed for the most part, but unhappy faces were rife amongst the myriad of Varaxians, Padukians, Digonians, Varasians. Humans. Humans in a laboratory. Huh. The headmaster had an idea, a risky one, but an idea nonetheless. I would like to talk to one of them. He pointed at the lanky, dark-haired human. The pirate captain growled in her throat. I am not your butler, Trevelyan. Turning to the hostage rescue team, he fixed them with a pleading look. Eventually, the treasurer spoke up. There'll be an extra ten million credits in it for you. The pirate captain mulled it over. Grunting in assent, she left the view screen and returned shortly with the disgruntled-looking hostage in question. Covering him upside the head, she growled, Speak! And no funny business! Leaning forward, the headmaster addressed the young man. Hello there. Who is it? How is everybody? Rubbing his head in the Korean replied, Fine for the most part. Nobody's been hurt. We're, we're complying on all that jazz. How many of you are there? About 250 total. It was a smaller expedition. The headmaster cut him off. No, no, no. How many of you are there? Glancing nervously at the incredulous glares now fixed on the headmaster, Juhu replied, Um, about twenty-five. Any specifics? Mommy, Hatham, Jim, Ophie, Jordan, Rick. The headmaster swallowed. Good, good. Well, I just wanted to tell you that 825 has been waived here, so you all should be safe and sound soon enough. Juhu froze taking his hand off his head and staring at the headmaster with an intense look. The headmaster stared back, unblinking. Around him, the hostage negotiation team looked around in confusion. Eight to five. What was that? Eventually, G spoke, slowly and deliberately. That's, uh, that's good. 
I'm sure everybody will be glad to hear that. G was promptly hauled off screen as the pirate captain stepped back at the view. Now that that display of favoritism is over, where is... Her tirade was abruptly cut off as the view screen went blank. A few seconds were spent as the hostage rescue team looked at each other in confusion. The confusion was resolved as all heads turned towards the headmaster, with his finger pressed on the cut link button. Are you insane? What is wrong with you? The sub-minister's daughter is on board. What are you going to do? You do not ever, ever hang up on a hostage taker. Do you want your students to die? Spirit above, you just doomed those people. Ignoring the lot of them, the headmaster sat back down, seemingly content to let them lambast him. The yelling was cut short as an explosion burst from Tense's aft section. Sparkling debris floated free, the atmosphere vented in white clouds, only to be curved by the emergency shield stemming from the breach. All sets of eyes in the negotiation room glared at the headmaster with a cold fury. He responded by taking out a pack of human cigarettes, igniting one and drawing deeply. Gesturing lazily at the comms unit, he drawled, You should get a call. Uh, we're back at any minute now. As if on cue, the console beeped. The view screen activated to show the pirate captain looking in a bad way. Half of her face was singed, and she was leaning heavily on the comms unit's desk. Emergency lights bled red around her, and a hellish mixture of gunfire and screams sounded in the distance. What the hell did you do? A negotiator stepped forward. Ma'am, uh, we don't know what you're talking about, but I implore you not to harm the hostages. We had nothing to do with the... I'm through with your lies. Now I... The headmaster sat back in his chair with a slow smile appearing on his trunked features. His serene appearance contrasted with the pure bedlam that he had unleashed. Again? Why would you do that? The headmaster wordlessly pointed at the comms unit. The blinking comms unit. The pirate captain looked in bad shape. Burns littered her face and upper body, and her left arm trailed limply at her side. Standing, shaking. She fixed a terrified look at the negotiation room. All right, all right, you can have them back. The console beeped again. Please, spirits above, we give up. The negotiators just stared open mouth at the view screen, not even bothering to stop the headmaster. Nudging forward, the priestess spun the headmaster around and mouthed, eight to five. The headmaster reached into his tunic and pulled out a computer slate and turned it to her. Rule number 825. In the event of a hostage or lockdown emergency, students are instructed to fully comply and refrain from confrontation to the best of their ability. Rule 825.1. In the event of 20 well-equipped humans, this rule can be waived under specific circumstances. All attempts must be made for an ethical victory. The console beeped again. The vid screen lit up with the distorted image. Intermittent burns of clarity, revealing scorched walls, assorted rifles, and sparking equipment. I want my mommy! All eyes now turned to the priestess, who had a large grin on her face as she pressed the cutlink button. What? It's great fun. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 958 Story number one.
They hit as hard as they hate. Written by Lords of Jupe. Policing the galaxy is not easy, and prosecuting the offenders is less so, especially when it regards crimes which do not have active legal definitions. Leave it to the Terrans to require a full-on respect of the legal code as it applies to planetary offenses. This particular story dates back 50 cycles, give or take a few seasons, and involves a raiding team from out in the Denai cluster, but it still existed and the Terran colony of Nova Dietrich, which is what used to be a glorified metal smelting plant co-opted by the area military subcontractors for a fairly solid monthly fee paid to the workers. Essentially, the miners would drift into the gigantic holes punched through the rock, pull up and carry all the drones' buckets, and then someone would pilot the drones to the surface for the smelters to chew them apart and turn everything into either future space parts or slag that they built their habitat modules out of. Sort of a continuously growing operation, that. Until, of course, the raiders came calling and started making themselves a nuisance. Small-time stuff at first. A few rip-and-runs on the prefabricated parts and their three coax print farms. A kidnap and ransom at random. That kind of thing. And that's how those first few weeks were going to go, up until something happened to one of the miners. A Terran, of course, because a Terran is at the heart of every law enforcement story, sooner or later. Well, this Terran, a two-meter stack of angry miner who hailed from a little speck of land on a broad continent's eastern shore, descended from generations of miners, although his forebearers were strictly landlocked. This Terran, he took great exception to the latitude of the nine raiders, and the lax reply from what passed for corporate security on site. So, he shut down one of the depots, keyed off a set of drones, slapped a lid on it, and then blew what must have been 16 years again, give or take a few seasons, in paycheck funding to buy that particular shaft and those drones. After that, nobody heard from this creature for almost a month. And then I, well, they did what comes naturally. They escalated things. Those kidnappings became more and more frequent, and the demanded prices skyrocketed. The thefts became brazen, bolder, bigger, and less likely to recover, even if the on-site goons could de-ass their heads and give chase for a change. They even got to the point where they, those deny bastards, stole a crash tank from a Terran habitat and held the unborn in vitrio young of those Terrans for ransom, and threatened to toss the whole thing out of the airlock if they didn't get everyone's full-on savings. Of course, the miners paid. Even the non-Terrans on site gave up for the calls. And oh, how the Denai laughed after that particular handoff. And it was around then that the lid of the sharp six popped open like a pimple. See, what we had to piece together was that miner. He wasn't just some idiot digger with a piston drill and some laser feed. Not at all. He was a military physicist, and he was in his golden years, looking to earn some strong coin before he went into wherever Terrans go, other than maximum security prisons or retirement villages on moons with fluffy wildlife and expensive drinks. What came out of the tunnel was like nothing anyone had ever experienced. It was a byproduct of an angry physicist, engineer, miner, father, grandfather, and above all else, a Terran war veteran. It was a bullet. 
We had to piece through almost six weeks' time of clearing debris from the remaining proto-atmosphere of that particular rock, way out in the ragged edges of the Denai Cluster. What took place needed about six hundredths of a second, give or take, and vaporized the entirety of the fleet of the Denai Raiders, the personal habitat module that they were dragging around, and then the third and fourth moon of Denai itself, all before hitting the intended target 65 days later. In any case, once that lid opened, the planetoid's atmosphere was promptly ripped out into space, and it all went boom. See, when you drop enough magnetic metal down on rails set into walls of a deep, dark pit, it builds up a charge. Build up enough of a charge, it needs to vent. Or it needs captured. Capture it, you can make a magnetic bottle. If you're the kind of brilliant mind and have nothing except frugal rations, darkness, and sheer mind-breaking anger to focus on, and that fella, he had all of the above, that magnetic bottle then got a second for company, that second, a third, and so on and so forth, until there was stored energy enough to accelerate the barely functional elevator at the bottom all the way to the top. And right smack dab into the middle of it, there was a tungsten-encased foundry cauldron, and we speculate that it was filled with a second, smaller one. And that one was filled with what we are, at that point, just wildly guessing, was a homemade nuclear weapon. That, or something else, was able to punch a still-existing hole through the fourth moon, detonate the third into cosmic vapor, and then airburst the second, larger city in the surface of Denai. It's estimated that the Denai, given a few dozen years, may eventually relearn how to farm on an industrial scale, and are making exceptional progress at domesticating wildlife. That Terran hated those Denai so hard he blew up two planetary bodies, crippling the mining facility he lived on, and then hurled the culture's knowledge back over 5,000 years. Fifty cycles later, and we still haven't got the slightest clue as to why he did any of it. So, um... A word of advice. I know that you're new here in this particular prison, so I'd be advised. Maybe go pick on someone else today and get back to drilling your own hole. This asteroid ain't mining itself. End of story. Story number two. Devil's Temptation, written by Lane Meller. When the humans first joined the galaxy in its constant reach for the stars... Most species didn't think much of them. A bit stronger than average, perhaps. Stocky, with only two upper appendages. How little they truly knew of the darkness that was about to befall them. It started simply enough when the world they called Earth became open to all visitors. Soon, many curious beings came to this new world, famous for its lush foliage and vast stretches of dihydrogen monoxide pools. But with the introduction of Earth's great things, there also came its dark underbelly as well. Earth was still broken into many factions, with different cultures and foods to sample. It drew tourists from all over the galaxy, and with almost every faction came a different sort of paper money, trading it every time they crossed an invisible border was irritating, until the credit card was discovered. With a small strip of plastic, you could go around the watery globe, only needing to pay it off at a certain time and to a single company. The idea soon spread like wildfire, 
as every being could see the advantage of traveling the galaxy and not needing to trade money at every galactic port. Before this, you simply paid for an item and received it, and each planet tended to have a few money traders who would swap currency for a small fee. Now, you could walk anywhere and buy anything with a single swipe. Soon, humans were dominating every major market, and many would not even trade with you if you didn't have the slip of plastic. And with this new system came its new enforcers. Because even many humans know it's all too easy to rack up a mile-high bill, but all you have to do is show a card. And come for the debtors they did. The Repo Men. The insidious human devils with thoughts only of profit for what they were due when a being could not pay. They fell like savage beasts and the stupid and the weak, taking anything that they could find in exchange for missing payments. Soon, you could not even buy a home dwelling without a certain amount of reliability tied to the card, and it became mandatory for survival to have one. And soon, the humans had taken over. They had conquered all of the known galaxy. No guns, bombs, elaborate ships, or even a single real fight. Instead, they had won through the credit card debt and the dangerous temptation that was a spending limit. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 959. Story number one. Their song written by Cheng Lao. You don't need to be a regular subscriber to my articles to know that humans are universally toe deaf. It's common knowledge to all species across the charted stars that humans are the least musically inclined species ever recorded. Of course, humans themselves would never admit this. They would bring up examples of great human composers, musicians, and sound artists across their history. Names like Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, and Presley would be pulled out of this collective human history with misplaced pride. To this, I have always countered... But what about yourself? Can you sing a song of your own right now? And of course, every human would fall silent in response. I've never met a single human in my life that was able to sing a song of his or her own. Where it would take any other species in the galaxy mere moments to weave lyrics to melody. It typically takes humans several day cycles to do the same. Oftentimes, the human music composer would then have to find a separate human to sing the newly created piece, since the composer's own voice would be insufficient. The singing human would then take several day cycles, more in order to practice and memorize the song, before performing it. Not once, not twice, but for several twenty-eighths of time. Xenobiologists and revered musicians alike have taken a guess as to why the species capable of spaceflight and nuclear fusion is incapable of so much as singing a simple song of their own at will. Without going into too much of the jargon of xenobiology, the basic theory is that it results from the lack of individuality between humans. Again, human readers on this Ansible network try to defend their self-preserved individuality, but at the end of the day, they all have the same two arms, two legs, and two vocal cords. Yes, really. A single human can only sing two notes at a time, and even that takes a prohibitively large amount of practice. So much so that not having the same physiological shape as their fellow humans is considered a matter of disability, 
rather than uniqueness. It must come as a surprise to regular readers of my blog, or anyone that knows my status as a music critic then, that I'd been recommended to review a human music performance. I too considered this some part of a prank at first, but my agent informed me that it was purely business. So there I sat in the auditorium, with only a small number of others in the audience, waiting for the performance which I was already getting ready to criticize. That there were any members of the audience at all was a really amazing feat. Then the curtain lifted, and there stood the humans. Plural, not just a trio or a quartet. To call that a group of humans would be to diminish the scale and number of humans there. It seemed, at the time, like the entire population of Earth was standing on the stage. It is only later that I would be informed that the humans called this gathering of performance a chorus. This sight caused me to feel dread initially. As the first humans opened his mouth to sing his solitary notes, I feared that I would have to listen to each one of these humans sing their own one-note song until I ripped all seven of my ears off. But before I could yell at the thought of such torture, the most amazing and unthinkable thing happened. A second human voice leapt in to join the song. Their voices clashed immediately course, since they were not quite in perfect sync by galactic standards. However, it was better than the sound of a lonesome, hollow drone that echoed from the voice of a single vocal cord. Just as I began to accept this very minor improvement, a third voice entered into the song, and then a fourth, a fifth, a ninth, a fourteenth, before my mind could truly understand what was happening, the whole of humanity was singing in unison. And here rose where I must curse the limits of written language. I cannot explain to you the feeling that I had felt in that room in such a way that you could too feel it. Yet, I must try, not only because my contract obliges me to do so, but because these feelings have shaken the foundations of my being. The humans sang a song all right, not some song of the wants and the plights of a mere individual. They sang a song of titanic struggles that their collective ancestors sacrificed in blood and flesh to overcome. They sang a song of ancient heroes with names forgotten in the winds of time, a song of great hardships and even greater triumphs of the entire nations of humans. Their song... Their unified voice, through its volume alone, was enough to swallow away the human musicians and audience alike. I wept, I laughed, I wailed at every turn of the song. Their victories became my victories. Their losses became my losses. It was only when the grandeur song of the humans came to its conclusion that I once again recalled that I was not a human also. Of course, to say that I had nothing to criticize of the human performance would be an exaggeration bordering word crime. But such criticisms pale in comparison to the overwhelming awe of emotions that I felt in that auditorium. In my final verdict, I would recommend everyone in the galaxy to listen to the human ensemble performance at least once. Perhaps you'll be washed away in its passions, just as I was. 
or perhaps you'll find your stance unchanged. Regardless, I believe that the galaxy ought to give human music a chance. We've always laughed and cheered at the humans for not having songs that belong to themselves. Perhaps it is time for us to admire the songs that belong to them all. End of story. Story number two. What drives them? Written by Barsum Israel. I watched a human once rip the arm off a Dalgarian and beat him to death with it, a soldier said, sitting on a smoking drink. Mandibles clanking together in excitement. That's nothing, his friend replied. I once saw a human grab a thorax of those big treeth warriors and squeeze into the puffin too. Here he mimicked the choking air in front of him and taking his hands and wiping them apart. In two! An old, grizzled warrior at the table next to them was glaring in the direction, hatred smoldering in his eyes. Noticing this, the two began to get annoyed. Something wrong, old friend, one finally asked gruffly, glaring back at the older fighter. Oh yeah, the warrior said. I hear you. Humans, am I right? Rip you to pieces as soon as look at you. The two soldiers grinned. Damn right. In fact, the old warrior began, turning to look wholly at their faces. I once saw a human reach into a pile of burning rubble and pluck an infantry child from the wreckage with what was once his home. Uncomfortable silence was his only reply. I also saw that same large human cradle the broken figure between his chest and weep, weep. The older soldier was glaring at the other two, rage writ large on his face. And that same soldier... Rears streaming down his face, gently laid that child on the ground and went up to the Targaryens that were intentionally targeting females and children. And yes, he ripped it apart with his bare hands. The old soldier stood up, slamming his fist under the table. And I once saw two fools deep in their drinks, sitting safe at a bar, far from conflict and death, telling horror tales about humans relating only to what they did, not relating to what drove them to do it. Throwing a coin on the table, the old warrior turned and left the bar, and for a long while afterwards, silence was in his wake. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 960 Guardian Angels Written by Digital 332006 the Doxa Ion traveled to its predetermined path at great speed. A little less than five years remained until it reached its destination, the potential colony world of Noma. Initial surveys were quite hopeful, and a mission was authorized, sending a single occupant to perform additional tests and establish an initial outburst should it be acceptable. The Doxa Ion's computers picked up something odd, and a brief field not supposed to be there. Unable to properly adjust its trajectory, it defaulted to its emergency subroutine. The cryogenic capsule that housed the single living occupant of the spacecraft hiffed and started thawing its occupant. Coughing and disoriented, Lagant made his way out, his appendages grabbing at everything nearby to prevent him falling down. By now, sirens were blasting loudly and the ship's propulsion had stopped but was still heading in the debris. 
Lagant managed to excruciatingly make his way to the center console, trying to understand what was going on, but was still in a semi-dazed state. He operated the console, bringing up a display that showed the unforeseen debris field. Quickly, he tried to import a new course, but felt his mind become hazy. An intense migraine paralyzing him, likely due to the combination of stress and not using the proper amount of time to rehabilitate himself after cryogenic sleep. Grabbing his head with his four tentacles, he slumped backwards and lost consciousness, leaving the ship at the mercy of space. An unknown amount of time later, he awoke and raised himself from the cold floor of the spaceship. Confused and disoriented, Lagant sat down in the command chair until it all abruptly came back to him. He rushed to the computer and opened up the outside display, but there was no debris in sight. Going into his ship's logs, he checked for a time that he was awakened, finding out that it was some 13 hours ago. Curious, he delved deeper to see what course corrections the ship made while he was unconscious, but found none. Instead, a single entry was present, and it appeared as if he had made the proper corrections himself. He scratched his head as he distinctly remembered not being able to do it in time. Computer, who entered these new coordinates? He asked out loud. Unknown origin, came back the digital reply. Is there anyone else on board, computer? There is a single life sign on the docks on. Perhaps it was a system glitch then. Were there any unusual energy readings or software glitches in the hour following my awakening? Affirmative. Unknown energy signal occurred at 17.54 and lasted for 22 seconds. Finding the entry time, Lagand played back the onboard footage recorded during that time. As he predicted, by then he was laying down on the ground and not moving. Squinting, he could see the computer's display change to a screen used for entering coordinates and see numbers being inputted. Someone, or something, had used the computer while he was knocked out. They had altered the ship's course to prevent the collision. Did he have some kind of alien hitchhiker getting a ride at his ship? The system had found no other life forms, though. The same play would be to forget this had happened and go on with his life. But about him, curiosity ended up getting the upper hand, and he set a plan in motion. This thing was smart enough to know how to operate a ship and knew how to hide itself. It would have to lure it into a false sense of security. With that in mind, he tried to act as normal as possible. All right, uh, that was weird. Okay, how long until we arrive, computer? Three years, eight months, and eleven days until we reach the orbit of Noma. He blinked rapidly in disbelief. But what? Please verify that information and compare it to the previous course. Calculating. New course is 18.7 more percent efficient than previous path. But how? Gravity on the objects on new course have been used to accelerate the Doxa Ion. This increase in speed over the course of three years will amount to an estimated seven months of travel time. Seven months was a good amount of time saved, but not nearly 19% of a five-year journey that was left. What about the other five months? Unknown query. The splitting migraine was starting to come back, but Lagant would not be deterred. He manually added up all the information and calculated it from scratch. Then, using the old information, reversed from there. 
the maximum speed of 0.72c that the Doxa Ion was capable of was now 0.81. As preposterous as it sounded to him, it seemed that the entity had altered the ship itself. Was it using the Doxa Ion to get somewhere and wanted to reach its destination faster? Was it simply benevolent? All I can knew for sure is that it had done all of this in the span of 22 seconds. Lagans closed the computer terminal and went to lay down, hoping a good sleep would let him come up with something. Sleep had been a good advisor, and five hours later, Lagans woke up with an idea. It was certainly plausible that the entity had no physical body. Clearly, this might be a different kind of life form, but energy can be contained. If he could find a way to trap it, at least until he understood it more in order to make a decision about what to do with the creature. The next part was necessary to prevent it from escaping. Making his way to the computer console, he sat down and readied the settings that he'd need for the second part of his plan. Computer, erect a containment field around the ship. Assume a level 4 breach. The ship was soon enveloped in a field meant to prevent air escaping into empty space. As the field itself was energy-based, it was likely to react with whatever organism might be present. Having prepared the field settings beforehand to ignore his body's organic material, he braced for the odd tingling sensation that occurred when the field crossed a living being. Entering some commands into the computer, Lagant worked fast and made the field retract past him and go deeper into the ship, with the field from the other end of the ship also coming this way. For a brief moment, the field sparked and he could see the undefined shape take form but vanished quickly afterwards. He kept the field to a small rectangle-like shape and froze it there. Getting up, he looked at the small inside area of the field but found nothing. Time passed and the creature seemed to not react. Perhaps minding his time. Frustrated, he began talking to the empty space. I know you're there, show yourself. Still, the creature did not show itself. Thinking that he was going mad, he tried performing tests and scans, but to no avail. For three days, he kept the field up and made no progress. Just as he was about to give up, he decided to try talking to it once more. You know, the ship's batteries will hold and I can keep this up for the whole trip. Some kind of blue clouds became visible from within the field and began moving around the narrow area of the field. As he began to wonder how to communicate with it, the cloud stretched and formed the letters to create words. Recording everything, Lagan started transcribing the letters. Need more room. Did it truly need more room, or was it perhaps looking for an opportunity to break through the field? He needed more information. I can't do that just yet. I need to know that I can trust you. Who are you and what do you want? The cloud's color changed from blue to green and red before settling on blue. Letters started appearing again. Then he took note. Traveler. Explore. Harmless. You say that, but you were able to use the ship's computers. I don't know anything about you or your kind. The cloud began writing again. True form. Need room. How much? The cloud proceeded to give out measurements. It was not much more, perhaps 70% more of the area than it had now. All right, but I'm setting up five minutes self-destruct. 
I'll postpone it as long as nothing happens to me. Agent went back to his console and set the self-destruct before adjusting the size of the field. The cloud started taking more space in the area inside the field, and then something shone brightly. A powerful light emanating from inside blinded Lagant to what was happening, but it lasted only a brief moment. Now instead of a cloud, a bipedal creature stood upright inside the field's influence. It was slightly taller than him, but had many fewer limbs. However, it had a regal bearing from the way the two large grey wings extended from its back. They seemed forcefully retracted, almost painfully so, by the field. It was impossible to determine the creature's gender at a glance, assuming it even had one. Thank you, the creature said, the words coming out of its mouth. The sudden change had Lagant asking himself some questions he had long forgotten about. Are you one of the eight deities? The self-destruct countdown continued in the background as the strange winged creature blinked a few times before replying. Oh no, uh... That's a common misconception. We simply exist on another plane of existence, free from the physical shackles. I am no more of a god than you are to most other life forms. Every piece of information the creature provided only prompted more questions. Who is we? My species refers to ourselves as humans. We have no specific form, at least not since the ascension. I chose this one because it felt appropriate, given what I do. And what is it that you do? Have you been spying on me, thou whole species? It's not exactly like that, but, well, many of us act as guardian angels. We go through life with other sapient creatures and try to help out. That's what you did with the console. You altered the course while I was unconscious. But why? That's a complicated question. It would take a while to explain. Could you perhaps stop that self-destruct? I wouldn't want to be interrupted. Still skeptical, Blagant adjusted the self-destruct to 15 minutes instead. That's the best I can do. The winged creature sighed. All right, well, uh, we used to be physically bound to a body like you are. However, we eventually discovered a way to exist as energy. This opened up many paths for us to follow. I'm rather old, you see, and I've done plenty of things. Everything I ever wanted, actually. And for having had this amazing life, I want to give back. To let others also be able to experience rich and fulfilling lives. Taking a breath, he continued. By being there and guiding someone else through life, helping wherever I can, I am able to see that come to fruition. A long, long time ago, you see, we created mythology about creatures called angels. There are many versions and accounts, but the one I draw inspiration from is the better aspects. The ones that talk of angels guiding lost travelers or helping the injured, this inspired many stories, legends, and became culturally relevant. Suffice to say, this is what I aspire to be. The winged creature continued on for some time, talking about angels in history and myths. Some minutes later, the history talk stopped, giving Lagant time to add in a question. So you'll be there until I die? Well, uh, 
that was originally the plan. However, this would have all been done without your knowing. This changes everything, unfortunately. I can't be a guardian angel of someone who is aware he has one. Why not? Is there some kind of rule that you must follow? This would change the choices you make and the decisions you choose. Every human is free to follow their own ethics, and these are mine. Now, if you'd please release me, I shall be on my way. Blackened pondered about it for a few moments. He could keep the human in captivity, bringing it back as proof to his homeworld. What would be the repercussions, however? On the other hand, if he let it be free, what proof would remain? Perhaps it would be best if this incident never occurred, given the good nature of the creatures and the services that they provided. With some reluctance, Lagant turned off the field. Turning back around, the human had already disappeared out of sight and likely back into his former shape. Making final checks to be sure that everything was in order, he returned to his cryogenic station in order to resume the trip. The human, his guardian angel, would remain on his mind for some years, even though the busy work of preparing Noma for colonization would be at the front of his thoughts. A few coincidences would make him think back to that fateful encounter. Had he tripped by accident right before the rocks at the top of that cliff had started to fall and crash not more than two meters away from him? Or what about that time he couldn't find the keys to the rover, but upon opening it manually to start it, found three broken bolts around the engine bay? He would likely never know, but smiled gratefully anyways. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 961 Red Blood, written by Big Blue Button Man Ever since humanity had entered the fold of the Galactic Alliance, GA, in 3071, human years, tensions had unfolded, and the first talks that had taken place between the Federation and the representatives of the Galactic Council, GC, the human diplomats had always been accompanied by certain advisors, quiet and stoic, saying nothing most of the time. The talks were typical for interactions between the GC and prospective members, but these advisors, silent watchers, would always walk up and whisper something in the ears of the human diplomats that couldn't be heard or understood by the GC. When pressed by the council, the diplomats replied, just keeping us up to date on our defensives and securities. Nonchalance on the matter only made interactions fuzzier. However, there was no outward aggression or other indication that humanity would be a problem. Human diplomats were just peculiar, so the GC let humanity in. Outside of the secrecy, the humans were perceived as an above-average species. Space travel was subpar, with faster-than-light FTL engines reaching half of the standard performance and a fourth of the top engines. Infrastructure was in the middle of the road, the technological level was above average for the species upon entering. Their mathematics had some catching up to do, too. Biology didn't seem to be on their side. They were fleshy, not hard-skinned, and not very nimble. They couldn't climb surfaces very quickly or climb very many of them. Strength was lacking. Mobility was lacking. Human immune systems were weak. 
Outside of these impressions, the rumor mills spun up about secretive aspects of the Federation. On the fringes, conspiracy theories and plans to attack the GA or subvert it abounded. These theories and other skepticisms merely continued the more the GA citizens got hints and whiffs at the Federation's system of governance. Compartmentalization. Contingency plans. Need to know basis. Federation diplomats continuously put on a smiling face every time their secrecy came into question. GA citizens could never tell if they were truly genuine, but most hoped for sincerity on the part of the diplomats and granted the benefit of the doubt in the end. Overall, the alien species found little reason to be afraid of humans on the surface other than their curiosities. Shortly following the membership status, about a month's time, the exchange of peoples began. Humans would visit the alien worlds, and aliens would visit the human worlds. Handshakes would be made where possible. Tourists would gaze upon cultural wonders. As the early interactions with humans continued, affairs did not go without incident. Accidents happened. Sometimes a human would cut themselves within the sight of others, usually while making food or while running around in a drunken stupor. Accounts circulated in the galactic press and the rumor mill went to town. All the legends and myths were caught up. Eventually, it was confirmed. Yes, they had red blood, crimson blood. No previous civilized species in the known galactic worlds had it and those worlds that did were inhabited only by primitive species that hadn't yet reached the full range of sentience that the developed member states did. Their trait reserved for only the most ferocious of worlds. The GA had experience with red-blooded worlds, where the majority of these species bled red. Horror stories of explorers and even gaggles of armed mercenaries getting lost in these worlds and never coming back were common. The vicious sights and creatures of these worlds haunted the GA member constituents. Myth and legend abounded about why red-blooded species differed this way. If one wanted to sit around a campfire and scare friends, just tell a story or two about red-blooded monsters. While the civilization had not yet developed out of these worlds whose beings bled crimson, they were theorized. The hypotheticals were never pretty to GA constituents. Especially so, with the myth and legend to fuel the fear. A red-blooded developed society became the ultimate boogeyman to many of the GA worlds. Most species had a collective freakout, instantly connecting the secretive behavior of the diplomats to the blood. Although they could not justify any connection beyond their own suspicions. Demands came to bar the humans from the Alliance, to cut off all trade relations, box space travel beyond a specified no-go zone, and leave them to skulk in their own little space room. In essence, the galactic equivalent of being grounded. Some species, however, proposed more extreme preventative measures. Interventionist proposals from these member states included total subjugation or mass deportation, Sterilization and mass killing were demanded by the harshest of individuals, largely the rantings of the rabid thinkers of influence. Get them while they're weaker. The GC insisted on reining in the behaviors on the increasingly rogue powers, 
seeking to contain the humans but avoid an unnecessary war. It did no good. By the time any real move was made to restore order and deliberate artificial policy, ships were already entering into human space. The Galactic Council was convinced the humans would lose, too unwilling to plunge the GA into civil war and too prejudiced against humanity. They made no further actions to stop the rogues. Upon arrival of Yaris 6, a human colony world, the humans were initially confused until the ships spied upon the planet's metropolitan areas. Defenses fired back and were silenced in response. The ships landed, unloaded their troops, and massacred a population of tens of millions in a matter of weeks. Moments after the first shots had been fired, an emergency communication system, using the principles of quantum entanglement, immediately alerted all other human colonies and homeworlds. The network was little good for anything other than the galactic equivalent of Morse code, but sufficient for the task of instantly updating the whole of the Federation. And so, uh, contingency plans were put into motion. The invading alien force started with five human colonies, striking Yaris 6 first and attacking the rest in succession, with all human colonies alerted to the nature of the attack. Affairs ground to a halt on the subsequent targets. Once orbiting fleets blasted anti-space defenses into dirt, and ensuing ground troops found themselves bogged down, the invasion reduced to a snail's pace. Far more humans were armed than during the first colony massacre, making every square meter a battle, no matter the location. For every five humans killed, one of theirs went. But... There were always more humans around the corner. Combat was slow, tedious, and brutal. Humans didn't fight fair. Gorillas would sneak behind lines under the cover that they could and detonate themselves with explosives, or commit other butcheries on the enemy where possible. It was easy to do so after Yara 6. Even though the task force had sought to destroy much of the industries in the orbital attack, the numbers of weapons, small, medium and heavy, that the defenders still brought to bear was shocking and unprecedented compared to the expectations of the alien fleet with the first encounter in mind. It was taking months to clear any city. Space affairs were not quiet in the meantime. Occasionally, a few ships would interject into the affair. Not large, but hard to hit. Very nimble. They tended to poke holes in large battleships and attempt to discharge jet clearers into them, like a poison dart injecting its dust. The attacks were mostly failures. The ships were not well acquainted with the arsenal of the alien fleets and could only guess where to poke a hole to force the breaching forces. But one such attack eventually yielded success. Too preoccupied with the ground war to deal with the gnats, the fleet commanders didn't notice when one of these smaller ships disappeared, not with an explosion, but with a flash of FTL engines. A year into the invasion, the fleets obligated to just bombard the remaining strongholds for a few months straight, even if it left survivors for later disposal, and move on to the next system on their checklist. When the fleets arrived at the dedicated homeworld systems, the war was over. Homeworlds were surrounded by gigantic swarms of ships and further aided by equally vast defensive installations. 
Superiority in arms was not enough to win the day. One hasty exchange of blows later, the alien fleets retreated, but not before losing most of their numbers. Upon returning, the rogue nations began preparing for the inevitable, scared witless by the last battle, building up the fleets they could with their existing industrial war capacity and preparing for an invasion. For years, it never came. There were reports of activity here and there, of ships quickly blipping in and out before disappearing back into the void. No doubt, the rogue nations figured that it was scouting activity, but could never ascertain what they really knew and how it would factor into the impeding invasion. Finally, the hammer fell, and the human fleets pierced the territories of the rogue GA members with a blistering speed. Federation fleets were jumping between systems faster than any other GA fleet could, leaving battered systems behind. Any possible ground defense, space installations, or any other logistical military assets were hit with an extraordinary force the moment fleets entered the system. The most that would be reported of these encounters were of large fleets blipping in and swiftly unloading cargoes on priority targets where they already picked out in advance. Every alien ship met a different fate. Sometimes swarms of small fighters ate away at the ship defenses, leaving it open to heavenly artillery from the main fleet support ships. Sometimes breaching crews would do the dirty work, perfected from previous experience, even commandeering some ships and turning them against the enemy. Other times, straight ship-to-ship combat ensued, with battleships and battlecruisers exchanging blows directly. The rogue nations surrounded in short order. Two months into the counter-invasion in 3075, Afterward, the Galactic Council asked the Federation for leniency to heal open wounds and mend broken relationships. Such sentiments were not genuine designs for clemency. They only wanted the closest thing to a status quo of 3070. The Federation ignored them. Most aliens on the occupied planets were killed within a span of two years, with only a very select few taken in for scientific analysis. With worlds swept of Lavian life, the humans plundered everything else of value from the worlds following the purge, whether the remnants of the entire civilization's history, culture, and technology, or planetary resources to feed the industrial bloodline of humanity. Responding to the horrified GC's babbling, one human diplomat gruffly replied, Did you wail and scream this much when you left us all to die? In the developing decades, the Alliance members, what was left of them, found themselves ruthlessly strong-armed. You can't go there. You must pay this much money. We want five ships to be allowed to patrol these worlds. And many more demands aside. Every time, the Alliance acquiesced. What could they do when the massacre was the alternative? By 3200, the GA could hardly consider itself anything more than a vassal state. While their power was whittled away, they had decades of time to grieve their status of the Fallen Empire. Decades of time to lament the fate of the GC's subjugation. Decades of time to rage at the laws pushed on its constituents. Decades of time to reflect. If there was one benefit in the aftermath of the war, the scholars and intellectuals of the GA had plenty of opportunities to research why they lost. 
Investigative efforts were made easier by collaboration with human society that was both all too willing to brag about its history and all too eager to figure out what supposedly made their blood so vile as to justify the unprovoked invasion. Humanity spent every waking moment of its life embroiled in war with itself. It was practically a pastime, the natural consequence of red blood. Why the fluid made species more volatile and brutal still wasn't quite understood by humanity or the subjugated territories, just that it did. Regular worlds and the alien territories were considered pastoral and tame by the standards of the human's birth world, Earth. As much as humans found themselves bewildered at how any life in these worlds developed into civilizations, the other species were equally bewildered at them. Humans found such worlds, from their perspective, too conducive to genetic complacency. The GA found red-blooded worlds too chaotic and prone to harming genetic progress than helping. Regardless, the difference between the evolutionary paths was the difference between calm rivers and raging oceans. The GA species developed gracefully by comparison. Humanity developed as viciously as the world before the lived and breathed in a constant state of perpetual war. First against nature, then with itself. War ebbed and flowed, but never stopped. Not until the discovery of a tangible evidence for the existence of alien life. Every facet of human experience could be traced back, in one way or another, to the drive to survive against the competition, from other animals, the elements, or themselves. No other member of species of the GA endured this prior to membership. Consequently, in every way besides the technological disparity between GA and the Federation upon first contact, humanity was overwhelmingly better at war. The collective experience and almost ceaseless pool of knowledge around humanity's walls granted the Federation adaptability in war that no other species had and tactfully and strategically using any means available. In the arc of development, human nations eventually always had plans on the standby. They needed to, just in case. Another result of constant war-making was the weaponization of an entire society, the ultimate manifestation of war, every element of civilization dedicated to victory, any sacrifice allowed, all barriers removed, when death was the only alternative and the population was concerned, nothing was off the table. A situation repeated multiple times in human history, and not once in the GAs. The Federation at 3071 thus held expertise in immediately shifting its civilization assets to a war footing in a short time span, and in accordance with any battle plans on hand. Humans wrote the plans with any knowledge possible that indicated the potential attacks could likely occur and how they would unfold. If any specifics were difficult, they wrote up a set of hypotheticals and the signs to indicate which one was the most likely strategy employed by the potential invading enemy at the outbreak. When the first alien ships struck, one such plan was chosen, informing all colony worlds to follow the plan's outlines with haste. Logistical operation shifted in concert. The human predictions ranged from invading force going planet to planet, destroying the surfaces with impunity, to almost entirely engaging on the ground. The invader strategy was somewhere in the middle, 
an extension of GA Force's existing tactical doctrine. During the lifespan of the GA constituent species, space versions of naval warfare and island hopping strategies and tactics developed. Bombard to soften hard targets, land troops to conquer the territory. A game that humanity had already played had perfected. GA worlds kept military and civilian affairs generally separate, in peacetime or not, along with militaries maintained at relatively small size proportional to the whole population. Once it was clear someone was going to lose, the other side surrendered and submitted to the terms and conditions. GA species were not unfamiliar with the concept of annihilating worlds. They had the means to create weapons to do so. They just didn't want to. They didn't wish to engage with even the remote possibility of mutually assured destruction. It was madness to them. Some weapons were perceived as too dangerous to be wielded by any species. Very few weapons of mass destruction left the drawing board. None deployed or even used. That and ruthlessly glassing worlds might forego other financially exploitative opportunities. Altogether, GA worlds engage in little more than the human equivalent of skirmishes on a galactic scale. Because they couldn't stomach doing anything else. They all implicitly agreed that they'd rather not flood their worlds with traumatized veterans, subject their own civilian populations to untold horrors as a matter, of course, or endure the social consequences of fully militarizing society, let alone face existential risks. No member constituency cared about what other societies had to deal with, just what they would have to deal with, and all the board moves were made accordingly. Humanity could stomach far more sacrifices, especially when cornered. The GA lacked any extensive plans particular to human context by the time the invasion began. The rogues simply took their existing militaries and threw it at the humans in a paranoid, schizophrenic gut reaction, a strategy ripe for exploitation. Federation industry went into overtime producing weapons and chips to postpone the invaders, coupled with the appropriate tactics. In the long run, any attempt to appropriate technology was used, landing humanity on top-grade FTL engines during the war. And while the enemy was held at bay, humanity was producing a wall of steel across its worlds to consolidate itself at the front line, and eventually clogged the invasion when it hit this wall and flushed it out of humanity's system. The final defense force against the initial alien invasion was in fact crudely drawn up. Something revealed to the GA remains decades into the post-war years. With the pace of the invasion force, humanity couldn't make any ship or weapon more advanced than its enemy's weapons. But they could make far more of them. After all, the Federation merely needed to get the enemy off of their territory to allow itself breathing room and time to build the proper forces for a counter-invasion. With appropriated technology, humanity did in less than a decade, the GA's rogue nations paid the price for their actions. Now, humanity owns the Milky Way. If the Galactic Alliance could, they would have fled to the Andromeda by now, maybe warn others of the threat. They cannot, however, for when they wake up from this dream of the galaxy without humans, their eyes open to meet an endless fleets of battlecruisers hovering above each and every one of their worlds. End of story.
Tales from Outer Space 962. Story number one. I had never believed. Written by JDM5544. I never believed Thomas's claims. He always seemed to hold a negative view of his people, talking about atrocities that had scarred them for generations and the monsters that lurked amongst them. Not simply the actions of tyrants, but rather the actions of a common man. At first I feared that some other force took control of them. He spoke of being possessed, and I wondered if perhaps he was talking about the parasites or spirits. He quickly assured me that it was not what he meant. I then said that I knew of the criminals amongst the humans. Such beings existed in all species, I told him, and were nothing for him to feel true shame about. Again, he said I still didn't understand. It's not a little monster grabby, not until it is. I know, I know that makes little sense, and I hope that you never see what I mean. But there is a monster that lives in each and every human being. It's a part of our fight or flight response to threats, and it causes us to do things far beyond what we're normally capable of. I've never seen a grabby. I've been it. Ah, but it doesn't matter. With luck, I'll never see it again, and you never will. So, it's about your military, then? I asked for, I knew that Thomas had served with these people's military on one of their colonies. Ha! <laughs> no, Grabby, quite the opposite. It's one of the things they try and train out of you in the military, but it never works. He would speak no more on the subject. He was a curious man, more than willing to indulge in my constant questioning of his people and their history. Even more so, after the call-up, a neighborhood boy who was eager to confirm or refute all the rumors about the newest member of the Alliance. Is it true that you eat other, even uh, children? He once asked Thomas as he walked down the street, his four eyes flickering in excitement as his mother's hair rose in a horrified embarrassment. Thomas turned to face the collar and got down to a single knee to look him in the top set of eyes and said, only when they ask rude questions without talking to their mothers first. Then opened his mouth wild while moving towards the collar who squeaked in fear and quickly ran back. Thomas stood up, laughing and saying, I'm kidding, of course, Carlop. And the answer is yes and no. Carlop quickly turned back to face Thomas. What do you mean? Well, what do you mean? It's got to be one or the other, right? He said, confusion still obvious in his face. It is true that a small number of human cultures once practiced cannibalism, eating each other, he said, seeing the look on Carlip's face at the long, unusual word through his translator. But they were never large in number, and yes, it's true that one of our largest religions eats the flesh and drinks the blood of its main figure. It is, and has always been, completely symbolic. He had raised his voice so that the entire street could hear him speaking now more for them than for Carlip. And it is true that isolated cases of cannibalism continue to occur even today. In 90% of those situations, it is individuals who are mentally unstable. And in the other 10%, it is people who are in desperate situations who have no other choice. He continued to answer questions held by Carla and the others while I went inside. He'd answered all these questions and more for me when I had agreed to sponsor him. Thomas was curious, as were all humans... He moved easily through the streets, a natural hunter's grace in every step. He wore weighted clothing, I knew, to help compensate for the lower gravity. He claimed that he wore so much more that he weighed 25% more in Shardak 
than he did on his home world to help him keep in shape. It was clear that he was stronger than most, and his endurance was envied by every athlete on the planet. His people were clearly warriors, as they had faced the enemy on their own for nearly five cycles. Despite all that, I saw no reason to fear him. They had shown themselves to be naught but honest allies. Until the invasion. The enemy ships specialized in raids designed explicitly to cause damage to civilian populations. Thomas called them terrorist attacks, claiming the purpose was simply to spread fear and stretch resources. They were successful in both aspects. Upon hearing the alarm sound, I immediately began to flee to the shelter. These raids typically targeted large population centers, but rarely used penetrator rounds. As such, simply taking shelter below ground is often enough to survive. Thomas follows me, and as we exit the building, we are greeted by a horrifying sight. The Gormia. The Gormia are suicide troops of the enemy. They are considered a living dead, disgraced warriors who hope to pass into the afterlife with some semblance of honor. They are utterly ruthless and are known to kill five or more soldiers before dying. One held Kalrap by his skull, holding his sidearm between his eyes. Kalrap's mother was dead behind him. Four others stood around, waiting. To my right, I see Thomas rushing towards the Gormia, roaring, a sound so primal, I at first thought it was a war beast had been unleashed. In a way, one had. The Gormia immediately looked up at the sound, and I saw them step back, dropping Kalrap as they did so. I heard the leader begin warbling in his strange tongue. I knew enough to know that they were afraid, but of what I did not know yet. They opened fire at Thomas, their beams streaked across his skin, crossing in a pattern of red. His skin began to burn and bubble almost instantly. Even so, he did not slow down. Thomas threw his body at the Gormier leader, pinning him to the ground and took a hold of the knife at his belt and thrusting it under the leader's neck plate killing him instantly. Thomas then took the leader's sidearm and streaked it across the Gormia's faceplate, blinding them before removing his knife and throwing himself at the closest enemy, burying the knife between his ribs. Pushing himself back to his feet, Thomas took a hold of the second Gormia's weapon and aimed it directly at the third, who had only just begun to recover from the attack burning through his armor at such a close range, and dispatching the fourth in the same way. The entire exchange had taken less than 45 earth seconds. At the end, Thomas looked at me, and a sword in his eyes, the beast that he had warned me about. Gulrap ran to his sister, who hid herself behind me. Thomas continued to hold my gaze, before abruptly turning and running off into the city, towards the sounds of screaming and combat. I had never believed Thomas when he said I should fear humans. I never believed that the enemy could be stopped either. Thomas had changed both of those beliefs. End of story. Story number two. Why did I ask? Written by Admiral Marsupial Three. Ma gave everything one last check, making sure the interface between her state-of-the-art medical ship and the pre-FTL relic they were connected to was working perfectly. This wasn't as hard as it sounded. It was definitely a technological and scientific achievement, no doubt. But it had been done so many times 
than most of the decent ships in the Milky Way could find a compatible program on Galnet, along with the tutorial of how to operate it with their particular hardware. What made this one even easier is that this uh, relic was actually only 30 years old. Maul started the system up and began the process of reviving the 25,000 humans sleeping peaceably aboard the colony ship. She turned to her human colleague, Trevor, to ask a question that she can't believe she hadn't asked before. How many of these are out there? We found over 400 million of your people in the last 30 years. You're the only species that we had first contact with by sleeper ship. Trevor was just a scientist, so he wasn't privy to any more than the official public statement on the matter. Due to the turbulent times between the first confirmed colony ship launch in 2087, and the unification 40 years before developing FTL travel. It was impossible to know the total number, but our analysis shows that it couldn't be more than 500 million people. It sounded logical, but it sounded logical when they said that it couldn't be higher than 20 million, and 50 million, then 100 million, and so on, and so on. Just because Trevor wasn't privy to extra information didn't mean he didn't have a theory. Ma would end up wishing that she hadn't asked. So, um, you know how during the 20th century our population doubled every 40 years? Well, it slowed a bit in the 21st century, but was still going up way too high. Maul thought back to a human history familiarization course. Yeah, but you stabilized it by the late 21st century, according to your historical records. Trevor chuckled and looked at Maul in a way that made her realize that he didn't believe that in the slightest, before continuing. Yeah, you may want to look closer at those numbers. It didn't just slow down, but it stopped in the 2070s, and then stayed that way until we colonized Mars and a few large moons around Saturn and Jupiter 70 years later. It then just over doubled again in 30 years, then stayed that way until we discovered FTL travel. Now it's doubled again in the 20 years since we did, as soon as space and resources weren't an issue. As a wave of realization started to wash over Mole, she added, I don't like where this is going. Trevor smirked slightly, sensing that she was beginning to click onto the true story, and asked Mole a question that she didn't really want to consider. Do you think that we stop breeding like we always have? Does that add up to 500 million people to you? Maul ran rough sums in her head, even though she was sure that she really didn't want to know. It took you 450 more years to develop FDL travel from 2070. That means 10.5 billion at the rate of doubling every 50 years for 70 years, then increased to 22.5 billion over 30 years, then at a rate of doubling again every 50 years, conservatively, for another 350 years. Oh... End of story. Tales from Outer Space 963 Humanity Uncovered, written by Luxalusa 3 Cass Ilyorn looked around the Lewis Sander Tennyson spaceport with a mix of annoyance and boredom. Earth was certainly beautiful from orbit, in a way that was far different and yet as equally pleasing to his beloved Jünger. But he doubted it would hold any of the excitement. Exiting the grey utilitarian structure, he had docked his shuttle in. Cass was taken off guard by the size of the city that sprawled before him. 
Welt's Darth Renning was not called the Jewel of Humanity for nothing, it seemed. From the spaceport, which was situated higher than most other buildings, he could see the vast majority of the city, with the magnificent Chaldean Sea crashing against one side, the Saharan jungle prowling along the fringes on the other. Skyscrapers jutted up into the heavens, while large parks and recreational centers were visible between the cool steel of its structures. Most in the Changlu style, being cubic and blurred before being broken up by sections made of tall pillars with intricate metalwork and statues, all topped with the tiered roofs that flared up with eaves, a synthesis of modernist, neoclassical, and Chinese architecture. Though, of course, Cass didn't know that. And between every building was a literal swarm of humans, flowing along the grid patterns of streets and walkways like electricity through circuits. No city in Kyrian compared to Valren, as its inhabitants called it. Being limited by the archipelagan nature of Yunga's landmasses, Kars quickly shook away any awe that had crept up into his slitted, sulfuric yellow eyes. He was there for a purpose, after all, and ogling the human city would do nothing to progress it. Said purpose was investigation of human history for cataloging in the new galactic encyclopedia of sapient species which had not yet been updated since humans had become a member of the galactic community nearly a hundred years prior. Despite the honor and importance of the task, however, it was not one he relished. Not that Cass disliked humans. Quite the opposite. He found them friendly and clever, but with a sense of honor and morals that made them dependable. Not to mention that bipedalism, life birth, and use of memories made them far more relatable species than the Kyrian and the cult tag, especially when compared to the anthropod Vashimasai, centered soul, and the asymmetrically forming swarms, Luva Anoix. Although, in Cass's opinion, the lack of scales was disturbing at times. Ultimately, what made Cass hesitant was how boring he found the humans to be. Aforementioned traits had made them a predominantly mercantile species. The rash individualism, a trait that had driven the soul to split into three states, making them competitive and innovative. And the ease of learning languages in general, respect for cultural differences, was what made nearly every modern treaty negotiated by humans. Thus, while his colleagues Thrun, Tyre, and Kaios were each learning about a uniquely violent but brutal soul state, the Dion was getting herself likely screwed silly by a swarm of Luvonix. Cass was, at his estimation, going to sip some juice while reading about endless decades of civilization building and cooperation by humans. Cass did admit that he couldn't quite be certain of what to expect. Humans, despite all their positives, remained a fairly xenophobic society. Not hateful, but guarded viewing other species with great curiosity, but keeping their own secrets close to their chest. This was doubly true of their government, the so-called Confederation of All Humanity, whose delegates to the Galactic National Forum were fond of making vague allusions without elaborating a true meaning. Cass had theorized this was due to other species being so more warlike and divisive, humans thus being happy to mediate conflict, but less trusting of those involved in that conflict. Their government did agree to a full examination of human history for the encyclopedia, however, so progress had obviously been made. 
pass boarded the sleek red shuttle that would take him to a building called the Kyrta Government, where the Confederation's leadership gathered. While aboard the vessel, a small human child, skin tanned and hair a curled mess, pointed at him and asked her mother if the purple dinosaur man was Barney, a common nickname for the Korean amongst humanity. Cass put a note at the back of his mind to also investigate its origin, as the child's sibling said it was clearly not a dinosaur, but a crocodile. Once he arrived at his destination, Cass was quick to remove his leather jacket. The heat endured walking from the spaceport to the air-conditioned shuttle being just barely tolerable. But the long walk from the shuttle station up to the marble steps of the capital was too much for him. As such, he walked along with it draped it over his arm. His torso bare sands a sort of orange sash that denoted him as a GNF official. Being an average cure, he was a hulking figure amongst the smaller humans. At seven and a half feet tall, with a musculature like that of humanity's most accomplished bodybuilders. Of course, the reason for why some human women and men began pulling their collars and fanning themselves as he walked past was lost in cars. Once, finally, within the building, sweat slipped out from the gaps between the scales on his head and neck. Quickly wiped away with a handkerchief from his pocket, Cass approached the sort of desk where a human man sat, typing away. He was a standard human of the singular ethnicity, skin being a deep brown, dark hair coiling up at the ends, jaw squared and cleft, eyes slanted and dark, nose aquiline at the bridge, but why at the nostrils? Arising not long before the discovery of the other sapient life, the singular ethnicity was the most prominent in modern day, a singularity of all other major ethnic groups. Seeing Cass, the man named Tab marking him as John in both human letters and forum phonetic script, barely batted an eye. How may I help you? He said cheerily in a fairly perfect yawk the standard language of the cure. I have an appointment, investigate Cars Ilion with the Encyclopedic Commission. All right, just a moment. Ah, yes, right in time. Uh, take that elevator to the top floor. The administrator Nutana will be in our office. Right, thank you, Cars replied before he entered the designated loft. He was thankfully alone as he doubted many humans would fit comfortably inside the box with him. As the thing lurched upwards, he recalled that upon translation, he was surprised to find that the Confederation's head had such a humble title. Even its other officials had titles like Supreme Director and Chief Officer and High Overseer, but the human meritocracy made little sense to Cass. The Gaius oligarchic republic being the only mode of government that he truly understood. The write-up was too quick for him to think too much and he exited to find a corridor lined with paintings. Ignoring them, he walked straight to the door ahead, and he entered after the light knock. The room was circular, lined with bookcases, the back wall was of glass, and four portraits hung at even intervals. The first was of a man of similar features to a singular, but with rounder eyes and hair of a shade lighter, Federico Vergara, the first administrator of the Confederation. After him was a woman with the darkest skin cast had ever seen on a human. Her pra named her Taya Maedet, second administrator, 
and the first to be lunar-born. After her was easily the most famous administrator, Louis X. Tennyson, a man who was the epitome of singular ethnicity aside from his piercing green eyes, who famously shook hands with the Choltag ambassador sent by the GNF. Lastly was Kangla Verna, the extremely popular previous administrator, lunar-born singular, killed in a tragic pirate encounter while traversing salt space. And that left Marinda Nutana, the woman sitting in front of him. She suffered from albinism, Carl had learned, explaining why, despite having feminine singular features, her skin was almost purely white, and her hair much the same. She looked up at him with her blue eyes, though encircled by puffy, almost pink eyelids, full of fiery determination. Carsilion, welcome to Earth, and welcome to Valron, she said in Yok. Thank you, Administrator, for welcoming me, and I apologize for having you speak in my tongue. I would have just transitioned to yours, but Esperanto is difficult for my mouth, and my mission here requires clarity and careful communication. It is more than all right, Sanjara Ilion. Now, while I will be authorizing you to see our histories in the archives below, I wanted to answer some of your surface-level questions myself. I, um, all right. Should we simply begin? Yes, go right ahead. Well, um, what would you deem as the most prominent events in human history? Those will likely be where I start my research. Hmm, well, I will exclude first contact as that is well-known event to the galaxy. Of course, in that case, going chronologically, I would say the first is the Renaissance, a period of cultural revival after years of chaos and regression following the collapse of a prominent empire. Renaissance. I'll have to ask for transcribing of that, he says, though he does not say his lack of shock that the first event is a cultural flourishing. Then there is the Enlightenment, a movement in politics and philosophy that began to examine new forms of political and scientific thought, followed by the Industrial Revolution, a period of technological progress, as we moved into steam and early combustion engines for power, as well as early harnessing of electricity. All right, in the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution, more cultural and peaceful progress. Truly a shock. Next, um... The French Revolution, which occurs right amidst the Industrial Revolution. Is that another cultural jump? Cass cut in. No, the administrator said with a bit of a smirk. It was a violent rebellion by peasants and the intellectuals against the absolute monarchy, in which many innocent and not-so-innocent lives were lost to public executions, political imprisonment, government purges, and warfare. That, uh... I was unexpected. And this established your current regime, or provided a basis for it? He asked tentatively. Oh, certainly not. It merely destabilized the established political system between competing states and threw the most influential region in the world into decades of war and turmoil. Carsa's silent digesting of the information led her to continue. After that, I suppose there are the world wars. World wars... Yes, three to be precise. The First World War, or the Great War, was the result of a conflict between a series of alliances. Advancing technology, coupled with outdated tactics, led to the loss of millions of lives, 
to what culminated in little gain on either side. Vindictive diplomacy and peace negotiations coupled with an economic crisis resulted in radicals seizing power in several nations. And the Second World War, the Vengeful War, saw even more death and destruction, with millions killed not just in combat but in systemic genocide. It was finally ended after the last opponent of the losing side was hit with two atomic bombs. And finally, about a century later, despite a build-up of nuclear weaponry, advancing defensive systems had rendered them useless, and so when tensions between two power blocks reached ahead, traditional warfare took over, with, once again, millions caught in the crossfire until finally a stalemate was called and both sides were given minor gains that left all unhappy. The resulting chaos and murderous civil wars are what allowed for the ideology of Aquilism to become established, and eventually, as proponents of its seized control of nations, it resulted in the slow unification of the human race after a few more minor wars. Gar sat there, taken back, though he had not stopped taking any notes. After a full minute of silence, he spoke, I uh, did not expect such a bloody history. I expected as much. Humans have certainly kept it rather well hidden. The administrator frowned. Teach that your legacy is war, and there will be war. Teach that your legacy is peace, and there will be peace. Admin Tennyson spoke those words when he established our policy of reclusiveness. We wanted to establish humanity as peaceful, useful, and influential species before revealing how we got to that point, lest we be seen as violent and chaotic. Remember that our first meeting was with the Cholth Tag. And they are infamous for being uh, judgmental, Kaas said, slowly understanding. The silver bipeds had even quarantined the car at first contact, terrified of a species that had only just ended a long period of oppressive theocratic rule. On that, we can agree. It was the Cholt ambassador, luckily a liberal xenophile, who actually first suggested we not immediately reveal our histories to his fellows until we had made a good impression. Admin Tennyson decided to extend that idea further. But now you feel the time is right. Certainly. Not only are we trusted and respected, but with pirates encroaching from Kurian and Sul space to our colonies, we feel it is time to reveal that humanity is not a species of pacifists and pushovers. It'll also mean our new fleet will be far more feared. New fleet! Cass asked, alarmed. The Grand Navy of the Confederation, she said proudly with a nod. I believe it'll be approximately double the size of the Sul Imperium's fleet, and so nearly triple that of the Chalt Tag when it's finished. It'll be entirely defensive and peacekeeping, of course, and will work under and with the Foreign Federated Fleet. And I assume it'll be ready with the Encyclopedia Commission debuts through the updated encyclopedia in two years. Newtana only grinned. Cars did the Kaya equivalent as he realized his research was going to be far more interesting than he had thought. Is there anything else that I should tell you before I set you loose on the archives? Just one, Ambassador. What is it? Why do your humans call the Kier Barney? The galactic community should thus be glad that humanity has set aside its destructive methods. 
for the potential for conquest and war is nearly unmatched, as seen in the histories. Let them be seen as proud warriors turning to being peacekeepers, a fact that the galaxy will ever be thankful for. Humanity, Galactic Encyclopedia of Sapiens Species, 6th edition. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 964. The Price of Consensus, written by Podge writes. Lager, Diplomat Heroxius Bar, Barian Consulate, Hunger of Sepleus. The first time I ever truly met a human, it was in a bar on a diplomatic hub, Hunger of Sepleus. A repurposed planetary engineering station in orbit around a contested star in the Maranth Expanse. We'd been pounding out the terms of peace between the Maranth and the Borathi for over a decade at that point, and while progress was frustratingly slow, there was at least some forward momentum to the negotiations. We had just wrapped up a particularly hard-fought round of deals over the mineral access rights to the system's non-planetary resources, and was celebrating over a game of chance involving cards, chips, and a genetically engineered set of pre-sentient dice. The human and individual by the name of Cherry had begun the game convinced that no one outside his race had ever developed the concept of bluffing, and thus had lost a sizable amount of the station script before realizing his error. Being good sports and in a charitable mood, we continued to play along into the night in order to give the poor creature a chance to make back some of his losses. He disappointed us by doing exactly that, waving his prefrontal pseudopods in exultation every time he won a hand. By the time my augmented reality overlay, which I was using in a somewhat unsporting manner to keep track of hands, told me that the human had won back his initial part, I was starting to believe that perhaps his race had some inherent advantage at gambling after all. I was considering leaving the game before my good mood was spoiled entirely. When my AR rig began to play up, I should explain, I, uh, like every other member of my species, and indeed most other sapient races, viewed reality through a lens of enhanced information and contextual feedback. In my case, this was mostly in the form of visual information, such as the current win-loss statistics hovering over each of my opponent's sense blisters, but other races had similar packages that simulated auditory or pheromonal or touch-based feedback as appropriate. While my current decision to use my own AR rig to aid my gameplay was a borderline bad form, and would have been forcibly disabled in a more formal setting, no one in close contact with alien species ever disabled the AR entirely, for obvious reasons. Thus, when my rig began to display garbled scanlines, visual artifacts, and noticeable lag, I was understandably concerned. Chancing a glance at my compatriots at the gambling table, I noticed that they also looked concerned, with a notable exception of Terry. The rest of the bar seemed to be growing agitated as well, and when my rig finally cut out, it was clear from the reaction of the rest of the room that everyone else was experiencing the same issue. There was a sudden cacophony of screams, hoots, and howls at the bar, and in an instant my eye stalks instinctively withdrew, mercifully sparing me from all but a glance at the hideous miasma flesh, chitin, and the inbarian forms of the bar that had just erupted into. After the initial uproar, the room fell more or less silent, 
as everyone essentially tried to hide from everyone else. The only sound was of one brave soul walking casually around the bar, possibly someone unaffected seeking to find out what was going on, and a small stream on an indecipherable nonsense that seemed to be coming from the direction of Terry. When the footsteps began to approach our table, I was horrified to hear the sound of ice scrub being cleared from the table. A sudden understanding of the situation dawned on me. We were being robbed. My outrage almost overcame my instinctual fear. I risked unfurling a single ice door to get a look at the thief. I immediately regretted doing so. A hideous mix of limbs, joints, and untranslatable stood before me. The product of evolution run wild in an environment that was entirely alien to the bar. The only recognizable thing in the scene was the sight of our hard-won script vanishing into a bag the thing held in the table's edge. I snapped my eye closed, and am ashamed to say that I emptied my frontal fluid sacs in the most inappropriate manner. I resigned myself to living with that theft as well as to at least one visit to the station counselor when this was over. When I was jarred back to reality by the sound of what turned out to be Terry rising from his seat at the table, it was clear that he was agitated, even without my translation software running. The sounds he was making were nothing like those I'd heard from him just a moment before, and the final crescendo of his anger came with the sound of a barstool shattering and splintering ceramic, and a heavy organic weight hitting the floor. Shortly thereafter, AR rigs throughout the bar began to reboot, the source of whatever interference they were experiencing having been disabled. And when my own was verifiably back on, I ran a full diagnostic twice, just to be sure. I risked a look. The bar was in chaos, but it was an organized, recognizable chaos. Other patrons were slowly shuffling out, and the station's security were making their way in through the main entrance, right and hard and sensory baffles equipped, but apparently unnecessary. Sitting just to my left was Terry, having found a replacement for his shattered stool in the prone form of our would-be thief, now thankfully rendered in a mercifully less offensive form by the treacherous AR system. In one hand, he still held his cards, in the other, his drinks while the third lay idle by his side. Next round, he asked nonchalantly. I must confess, it was at this point I blacked out. A few days later, after the group counseling session had concluded, I finally had a chance to speak to Terry alone. He had gone along to the session, but hadn't spoken. From his expression, it was clear he was there out of solidarity, and perhaps curiosity rather than any real form of emotional need on his part. After most of the weeping was done, we arranged to meet later that evening in his apartment. Thankfully, he had been too tactful to suggest another bar, a venue I wasn't planning on visiting again any time in the near future. Terry lived in a small apartment, roughly mutt's span, which gave it a mutually comfortable apparent 0.7G. He poured me a drink, which my aeon told me was digestible, if not inebriating. This was fine by me, given my current psychological state. We spent a short while with small talk, mostly concerned with the negotiations and some minor station gossip, before I moved the conversation to the subject of my actual interest. You know, I began, 
I realize I never actually thanked you for your actions at the bar the other night. You saved us a lot of script taking care of the hacker like that. It was rather brave act, if I might say so. Oh, it was nothing, he replied, waving away the compliment with one grasping implement. I mainly wanted to ensure that we could keep playing after things calmed down. Not much chance of that, I replied, once everyone had been exposed unfiltered. Terry nodded in agreement. Yes, I understand that now, but at the time I wasn't quite clear on the implications. His words seemed to hang in the air for a moment, and I decided to move directly to my point. I've spoken with both station and embassy security staff about the incident. There wasn't actually the hacker you took down, but rather an accomplice. They found the hacker last night. Terry raised an eyebrow. They did now, he said. I'll have to chasten my embassy staff over this. No one informed me. It's all still rather hush-hush, I explained. The hacker was a mid-level station technician, and it looks like he co-opted station resources to achieve what he did. AR encryption is top-end, all but unhackable. He needed a sizable chunk of the station's processing core to make it happen. It's clear there must have been others involved, at least some low-level staff in reactor maintenance to cover up the increased power demand the core was putting during the incident. I watched Terry's reaction carefully. Recently upgraded cross-species expression software in my AR scanning his every pore and micro-gesticulation and transmitting the same back to the mainframe in the Barasian embassy for examination. If the human diplomat was aware of the scrutiny, he did not show it. Yikes, Terry replied. I can see why you're keeping this low-key. If it were common knowledge that the station staff had been compromised in this way, it could pull the rug out from under the negotiations. Certainly, in the short term. I nodded in agreement. Yes, uh, this is of concern, but not my government's primary worry. Terry looked confused, though he sat up straighter at the mention of my government, likely coming to the realization that my visit was more than just social. My AR rig informed me that there was a 95% possibility that this reaction was genuine. But then again, any diplomat would be well-versed in keeping their real feelings to themselves. I pressed on. We find it unlikely that this was a simple robbery, given the effort involved. Someone with this kind of station access would have access to no end of blackmail material, as well as the ability to redirect station resources. One last shipment of computer equipment would be more than exceeded in the earnings of a few stolen wallets and our casual gambling. I don't recall you feeling it too casual about it at the time, Terry said, grinning, no doubt attempting to lighten the mood a little. I ignored the effort. I was wonder, Terry, but this was government business. We're pushing for the exact details of the hack, but station security are holding back, I went on. No doubt they don't want anyone to know how badly they screwed up, Terry posited. Indeed. However, we are able to discover some details. It seems that there was a third party involved, one with access to governmentally classified details about station security protocols and AR encryption modulation. I let the unspoken accusation hung in the air for a moment. Terry stood up abruptly. Heroxius! If you mean to make some kind of accusation, then I'd appreciate it if you came out and said so. Otherwise, I'd advise you to finish your drink and leave. Sit down, my friend, I replied. No one is accusing Earth of being involved in any way. 
If nothing else, your own judicious use of the barstool is responsible for us knowing as much as we do. Somewhat mollified, Terry sat back down. My AR rig somewhat redundantly informed me that there was a 99.9% probability that his anger was genuine. I continued, We suspect that this was a field trial for AR manipulation technology by one of the negotiating parties. We've had hints of low-level attempts at gaining access to diplomatic AR rigs for months now. None successful. Until now. Okay, Terry replied, his anger subsumed by interest in what I had said. I can see how that would be an issue for you. Subtle changes in the exact details of certain agreements. Manipulation of what and how things were said. Hell, we both know how much individual personalities can affect negotiations. Just making sure someone left a bad impression on the counterparts across the aisle could be devastating. Precisely, I agreed, enthused that he was so quick to grasp the scale of the issue. The applications are endless. It's precisely the reason we invest so much time and effort into ensuring the sanctity of AR systems. In fact, in the agreement our two peoples signed during our initial diplomatic integrations, an article binding both parties to share any and all encryption techniques applicable to securing augmented reality systems was given quite high precedence. I held my breath. I'd finally come to the heart of the matter. I watched Terry intently. Somewhere back in the embassy, three billion scripts with a quantum computer analyzed his every move. Terry burst out laughing. It was sudden and almost obnoxious noise in the small space of his apartment, and seemed to me to be as complete odds with the situation. My AR helpfully informed me that it was 99.99% certain that this display was genuine mirth. I muted the program. A moment later, when he regained control of himself, Terry finally managed to speak. Just, just so, so, <laughs> so, so clear, he said, between bouts of chuckling. You think my government is withholding encryption research, presumably because of my behavior the other night at the bar. It is no laughing matter, Terry. You clearly were unaffected by the hack, and you alone were able to react to what was happening. I'm here to ask you what encryption protocols your AR rig is running, and for you to kindly share them with us in accordance with the treaty obligations. If some third party is attempting to manipulate negotiations, it is vital that our staff be appropriately protected. I value our friendship, Terry, but my government has to know what it is you've been holding back. Terry's bout of chuckling finally came to an end, and he spent another moment regaining the rest of his composure. You wish to know what we've been holding back? Well, I'll be more than happy to do so, but I promise you, it's not what you think. Wait here. So saying, Terry arose and proceeded to the adjoining room. He returned almost immediately and dropped a small item of glass and plastic on the table. It took me a moment to remember that I'd muted my AR. But when I queried the system, it quickly told me the device was an ancient form of corrective optical system used by humans. Despite its redundancy, human biotechnology could correct almost any health issue that didn't outright kill them. The items remained as a piece of human fashion. In fact, I could recall having seen Terry wear them in the past, appropriately modified by my AR's interaction software, of course. Glasses, I responded flatly, a fashion accessory. I failed to see their relevance. 
Jerry grinned. Not just glasses, my friend. Those also contain a bevy of sensors, projectors, wireless network access, contact-sensitive interpretive software, bone induction speakers, and processing arrays. You are describing an AR rig, Terry. His grin widened. Exactly, he explained. They're my AR rig, not the ones I had at the bar, mind you. Those were fried, same as everyone else's. As if to emphasize the point, he plucked them from the table and popped them on his head. There was a moment of discontinuity as the item warped to fit around his altered physiology on my AR rig showed me. The effect was not disturbing so much as it was ridiculous, but I had grown used to it. Barian physiology was obviously somewhat larger than that of the humans. Terry held out his arms and continued grinning inanely, as if this display he had demonstrated all that needed to be said on the subject. This is ridiculous, I replied, growing somewhat exasperated. You were wearing these at the bar, that I concede, but what is the point of having an AR system that one can remove? What about your implants? Don't have any, Terry replied. Well, he corrected, that's not entirely true. My liver is artificial, drank the thing to the point of surrender in college. But I assure you, I have no permanent sensory implants. He removed the glasses again, as if to underscore his point. If this is the case, I asked, then how exactly are we having this conversation? You mean how are we understanding each other? Among many issues, yes, that is one, I replied. Well, he explained, I'm speaking English, and your rig is translating, I presume. Naturally, I replied dryly. And you're speaking a third dialect of diplomatic barrier, correct? I nodded in agreement. Well, he said, I understand that, and two other variants of barrier. My pronunciation would be terrible, of course. I lack your vocal cords, hence my speaking in English. But I assure you, I can understand you quite well. I blinked. Learning another language, let alone one of another species, was almost unheard of. Why would anyone bother when the universal translation was ubiquitous? That's, um, I began. Of course, I do require a translator for many of my duties. Some languages rely on sense or sounds outside the human range of hearing. But given the close relationship between your people and mine, all human diplomats learn at least one dialect of Barian. You weren't aware of this? It just, uh, it just never occurred to me, I admitted, impressed. This is almost unheard of. I'm honored, Terry, that you would take the time to learn our language. The man shrugged as if it were nothing. It was quite natural for us to do so. At the time of our meeting, we were inexperienced and were unaware it was even unusual. We wondered why our request for so much linguistics material were met with confusion. He kept sending complete translator apps rather than the source grammars and dictionaries. I recall the earlier meetings of our people, decades before. We thought that you were having trouble programming your own hardware to manage our language, I explained. But Terry, this is hardly explains the other functions your AR performs in interspecies diplomacy. You mean gesture recognition, he asked. I admit that that was harder to figure out than your language. I think I have it down now, more or less. The wavy thing you do with your tentacles to signal amusement is actually pretty hilarious to us. So no one was easy. Terry, I mean our appearance. How do you compensate for the xenophobe response without AR rigs? 
It was something of a taboo subject between diplomats. No one liked to be reminded that their people that they worked with on a daily basis could induce outright terror if seen without the protective filter of an augmented reality system. Oh, that, he said easily. I got over that. For those of you unfamiliar with interspecies interaction, I should explain. Millennia ago, when most species were still confined to their own system, and few, save the Maranth and the Colodile, had any interaction with other species. It was presumed by most that life, if it existed elsewhere in the universe, would more or less resemble the biosphere found on their home worlds. Aliens, when they were pictured at all, were usually imagined as anthropomorphized versions of life forms familiar to whoever or whatever was doing the imagining. Even humans did this, imagining bipedal felines, for example, or other organisms that roughly resembled themselves. Once spacefaring races began to explore and meet life forms from other worlds, however, this notion was quickly dispelled. Life had a myriad of forms it could take. Mass differences existed between what life there was from world to world, and what similarities there were served only to highlight the absolute otherness of life beyond the stars. The only thing life had in common, it seemed, was the innate disgust at, terror of, and inability to accept life from different evolutionary trees. You may find, for example, deep-sea life from your own world to be innately strange or disgusting, but ultimately that life form shares a common history with you, and in the grand scheme of things it's practically a family member when compared to the life which has its genesis on another planet. This reaction, expressed as fear or fury, depending on one's nature, became known as the xenophobe response, and it made interactions with other species almost impossible. In the early years, this led to misunderstandings and war, often fought in ignorance of exactly what the original disagreement had been. Eventually, over time, with a great effort, translation software was created, and communication at safe distance became possible. Ironically, it was discovered that intelligent life, despite its desperate evolutionary origins, had much in common in terms of cognitive capacities, emotional requirements, and goals. Understanding each other was at least a possibility, and true diplomacy between species became possible. Eventually, AR systems, previously used by many species for entertainment, communication, education, and more, began to play a more prominent role. These systems overlaid images onto one's eyes or whatever analog one possessed, depicting alien species in more relatable forms, usually as a somewhat altered version of one's own species. Thus, we find ourselves in the current era, having overcome our evolved shortcomings. Species from vastly different backgrounds can coexist in shared spaces, Environmental concerns accepted without voiding their untranslatable in terror, or going on a killing spree. Thus, Derry's response was as worrying as it was unbelievable. What do you mean you got over it? I asked, unable to keep a tone of incredulity from my voice. I wondered if Terry could even pick up on that without the translation software. Exactly what I said. Yes, it was freaky when we met you, but we got over it. Your people are giant balls of tentacles and sacks of hydrogen gas. Maranth look like a collection of skewered cockroaches. Gurul can't move without their joints sounding like someone murdered a cat. It's freaky at first. 
but you get used to it. Thank you for those horrifying images, Terry. Hey, here your best friend is a Maranth. You think I didn't notice you both trying to hustle me the other night? He replied. My AR told me that it was only a 10% chance he's angered being general in this case. He was mocking me then. Yes, I am aware, intellectually speaking, that Zenith is a Maranth, I agreed, but I certainly don't need the image in my head the next time we're speaking. Terry shrugged. Or rather, I thought. Did whatever my AR system interpreted as a shrug. Meh, he said. You get used to it. I don't know what more there is to say. What's that thing making me look like? He gestured vaguely towards my eyes. But it was clear enough what he meant. You look like a slightly obese barian male in the middle of his ears, I replied. What the hell? He shot back. Tell it I'm of average weight for my age and height. My AR system told me this had only a 5% chance of being the case. I smiled. Terry smiled back, sharing the joke. Terry, if this is true, why didn't you make it clear to us? Surely I'm not the only one who isn't aware of this. Terry looked more serious now. Look, he began, it's not that we purposely hint this. You just assume that we use the same AR rig as everyone else. And we didn't feel the need to correct you. Every species we've met that makes the same assumptions, and we don't correct them either. Our xenopsychologists posited that other races would find it strange to the point of distrust. I'm only telling you now to make it clear that we had nothing to do with the hack. I considered this for a moment. Your psychologists were correct, I said. Most species would find this strange, if it's even true, I added. Terry rolled his eyes towards heaven, or did whatever qualified at the gesture for his people. Now that he'd made me aware of it, it was impossible to ignore the fact that Terry I was seeing wasn't actually real. Merely a piece of software's best guess at how he would behave if his ancestors had evolved on bar. It was, suddenly, quite unnerving. I continued, How exactly is it that your people didn't come to develop AR? It's rather common technology, being a logical outgrowth of smaller process and portables. Are these, I gestured towards the glasses on the table, really your best people can produce? Our engineers could help you, if so. Terry sighed, but if he had taken offense to this, he gave no indication. With a certain amount of sadness in his voice, he began to speak. Oh, we developed our own AR, he explained, not long after we made our first steps into space. It began like these, he said, indicating to the classes. But before long, it was implantable, ubiquitous, everyone had it. We argued over rights to advertise via the devices. He argued over privacy concerns. We argued a lot, especially in those days. But we plowed ahead with AR. It was just too useful. It is exceedingly useful, I agreed. I'm unsure how you'd do without it. Oh, we get by. Diplomats use glasses like these. Construction workers have similar rigs. But none of us use full immersion AR anymore and many of us point-blank refuse to use even anything like these glasses. I'm just curious now. You say, uh, anymore. What exactly caused the rejection of AR technology? Terry sighed again, longer and with deep sadness. It was clearly a story he didn't wish to tell, but he told me all the same. The human homeworld of Earth had, at its peak, 
13 billion inhabitants. They'd been relying on AR for years in every aspect of their lives. Doctors used it to diagnose patients. Mechanics used it to overlay system schematics. And everyone used it for translation and entertainment. In fact, humanity embraced the technology to a far greater degree than is common. It permeated their lives. Humanity also possessed a trait which is shared by all sapient species, but which is particularly pronounced in its people. They are political creatures. Terry made an effort to explain to me the political structure of his homeworld at this time, and failed quite badly. The fault was not in his explanation, I suspect, but in my own comprehension. He described a world overseen by a Byzantine mixture of national governments, supranational bodies, global corporations, and charismatic individuals who could sway millions, some of whom were ostensibly only entertainers. In a way, and despite the vast differences in scale, it would most readily compare to something like what the Spiral Accord had grown to become. Naturally, such an organization confined to one planet became difficult to maintain. Political attitudes and preferences became increasingly polarized, to the point that governance was brought to a standstill by parties which, ostensibly, all had the people's best interest at heart, but which, on principle, disagreed with every single proposal their opponents brought forward. As governments changed, successive regimes would spend much of their time in office dismantling the work of those who gone before, rather than building something positive of their own. This rift cut clean through society, to the point where family members, neighbors, and peers simply cut off the discussion of politics from their lives entirely. The ability to entertain an opinion varying from one's own, once seen as a hallmark of education and intellect, was abandoned. This phenomenon arose, in Terry's opinion, out of an increasing curatable communication in an age of social media which created echo chambers of discussion around the world. But he admitted this view was not universal. Regardless of the cause, the issue was compounded by augmented reality. Over time, individuals began to filter political opinion that they didn't agree with from their news feeds. However, one could still be confronted with political disagreement from family and friends. AR allowed these opinions to be, at first, censored, and later, altered. If a parent or sibling didn't support your party, you simply enabled a feature on your AR rig which made it seem like they did. Do you believe education should be the responsibility of the national government? No problem. Your AR made it seem like everyone you knew agreed. Feel it should be a local state issue. Of course you're correct, and everyone you know agrees with you. People entered to committed relationships which, if they were aware of each other's political affiliations, would have ended in tears, if not bloodshed. More years this continued, expanded. It was widely believed to be a social good, and certainly increased social cohesion for a time. But it was itself an unstable system. It only served to deepen actual divides, all the while disguising them. It left people completely unable to deal with any opinion contrary to their own. When AR rigs fail, as they did from time to time, individuals would literally be left at risk of mental breakdown. Others disassociated themselves from society entirely, 
content with the affection of the social contact their AR provided without minding at all whether the interactions that they spent their day engaging in actually involved other human beings at all. The system could not last, and indeed it did not. Unable to deal with the actual problems facing their world, specifically a wide-ranging environmental collapse their industrial systems were perpetuating, human civilization began to decay. When the weather patterns began to shift, people simply set their AR systems to show them their favorable weather. When the skies began to blacken, people simply turned on filters to make them seem more blue. When food shortages began, the AR rigs used chemical injectors to suppress appetite. As I said, the human experience of AR was far more complete than that of most species. Eventually, many humans rejected reality completely and the society collapsed wholesale. They were left completely unable to deal with real-world problems, simply because any consensus became impossible, while apparent consensus was all anyone would expose themselves to. Those few who foresaw the disaster fled their dying world. Indeed, this is why the species is today most famous for having a home fleet, rather than a home planet. And that, concluded Terry, is why we are very careful with AR these days. The idea of using an implant as anathema to us. Well, the most prevalent conspiracy theory going is that the Spiral Accord, or the human government, or the Illuminati, secretly implants us with an AR rig when we're born and subtly alters what we see. Who are the Illuminati? I asked, still processing the story of the fall of Earth. A secret society that supposedly controlled the world Back on Earth, people used to like to think someone was in control of all the chaos. I can't see why, I replied. Your government was immense for just one world. It was, Terry agreed, almost as big as the Spiral Accord in its own way. I took a long look at Terry. Surely you're not suggesting that we are in danger of what happened on Earth. Our use of AR is far more sparing than that. Terry didn't reply immediately. Eventually, he spoke. You tell me, anything at the negotiations make you think maybe you're taking it too far? I thought for a moment. There was something, perhaps, though I was loath to admit it. The second moon of the third world in the system, it's to be handed over to the Marenth. They're going to build mining settlements there. And, Terry inquired, and while they've acceded to these demands, the Barathi intend to mask the presence of the settlement from their citizens using an empire-wide AR update. But seriously, Terry, this is only to avoid fomenting dissent. Every time Barathi citizens look up in the night sky, they'd see lights of the Morant settlements, reminding them of what they'd given up. That's hardly the same as sticking your head in the sand while your planet dies around you. Terry nods his head. I'll concede it's not the same scale, but it's on the same spectrum. This happens with all sorts of deals. Old parties think that they've gotten what they've wanted, but in reality, they're hiding something from themselves. Some goal that they couldn't achieve at the diplomacy table, but which they'd rather pretend they'd won. You become so obsessed with getting along, with reaching a consensus on the one right way to do things, that you've forgotten how to disagree. It's self-deception writ large, and it's not good for society. It wasn't good for us, and it won't be good for the rest of you either. 
we ended up that evening agreeing to disagree, something which I felt made an excellent counterpoint to Terry's argument. I finished my drink, and then another, before making my excuses and taking my leave. I had satisfied my initial inquiry. The humans were not holding back any technology which fell under the terms of the accord, and Terry even provided me with samples of their AR glasses to confirm the same. Before I left, however, I did wish to test something. With his permission, encouragement in fact, I disabled my AR rig. I would like to say that the experience was life-changing, inspiring, or otherwise revelatory. In fact, I took one look at the odd, unnatural biped from another tree of life entirely, and I threw up all over his floor. My AR kicked back in immediately. I offered to have the embassy staff clean his apartment floor, but Terry was a gentleman and wouldn't hear of it. I left his apartment embarrassed, but oddly elated. I didn't buy into his arguments about the dangers of AR, but I could see why he held that opinion, and more than anything else. I was pleased that, even as my mind reeled at its appearance, for the first time in 47 cycles as a diplomat, I had finally, truly, met a member of another species. I had truly met a human. I resolved to start learning English at that very night. Epilogue Ambassador Terence Spinoza, Earth Diplomatic Corps, Hunger of Spepleys, after Heroxius had left, I called someone down to clean up his mess. Baryan vomit was actually markedly less obnoxious than the human stuff, but it did tend to stain. Once the cleaning staff had departed, I poured myself another bourbon and sealed the entrance to my apartment. I flicked open the drawers to my desk and spent a few minutes turning on the plethora of privacy devices that I carried with me to every post I'd taken since leaving my home ship. A brother's quarrel some fourteen years before. Satisfied that I couldn't be overheard, I made the call I'd been intending to make since the moment Heroxius revealed that our assets in the station's IT staff had been compromised. Yes, came the voice, digitally scrubbed to prevent me from ever knowing the owner's true identity, just as my voice would be on their end. I just overheard a meeting between two Baryan ambassadors, I lied. No point giving out identifying information. Station security has our assets in custody, and the Baryan Embassy means to investigate this further. Our entire AR decryption effort stands to be uncovered. There was a moment's silence on the other end of the line. Your orders, sir, gave the voice. As much as it pains me, we can't risk discovery. We can't save these people from themselves if they don't trust us. Agreed, the voice said. I presume we'll move ahead with the cleanup protocol. I'm afraid so. I believe an accidental depressurization should do the trick. Serves the bastards right for trying to make a few bucks from pretty theft by co-opting a program intended to save the entire goddamn spiral arm. The line was cut. There was no need for a response. We both knew what had to be done. I downed my bourbon and pondered pouring another. This was a setback, but we had a similar programs in place at other stations, with other approaches. A mass shutdown of the AR rigs was, in any case, a last-ditch scenario, only to be used if all other efforts to convince the Allies to reduce their reliance on the technology failed. Every year, their systems of communication and government grew, and every year, the parallels between the Spiral Accord and Earth grew more apparent. Still, 
Whatever the top brass claimed, I was quite certain that the last-ditch effort would someday be the best option available. I'd been a child when the last survivors of Earth had died, but managed to meet a few. Even after all they'd seen, most still refused to accept that they bore any personal responsibility for what had happened. I downed the last shot of bourbon directly from the bottle. Yes, it would someday be necessary. Not sure of that. History, after all, had a discouraging way of repeating itself. End of story. Tales from Our Space 965 New Old War, written by Radius 55 In 2075, humanity discovered that it was not alone. There were no mysterious transmissions, no dramatic requests to speak to a leader, and no cities classed from orbit. Instead, a craft the size of a pre-space aircraft carrier slid into the shipyards at L2, transmitted a manifest, and requested docking. When a group of world leaders attempted to contact the aliens and determine exactly where the constituents would fit in the inevitable new galactic order, they were stunned to find that instead of a diplomatic or exploratory craft, they were dealing with the space-bearing equivalent of a trap freighter. Freighter or not, there was shake-ups to go around, along with blind explanations of the true purpose. The ship sent a long list of technical documents and scientific theories that they were willing to share, for a price. Companies hoping to get the edge on their competition took one look at the costs and blanched. Not having any up-to-date industries in the galactic terms, the price would have been paid in heavy elements, and lots of them. Literal years of human production for a few data files, but the US and the Russo-Sino alliance were together able to scrape together enough gold platinum, osmium, meridium, and palladium to buy four pieces of information. The first was a rough map of the local galactic neighborhood, complete with known territories and dossiers of other civilizations. The second was a high-efficiency vacuum energy power plant design. Third involved plans for an inertialist drive capable of several dozen Gs of acceleration. And finally, there was the hyperdrive. It turned out that there were dimensions residing above the one we fondly refer to as reality. Each had a higher energy level than the last, but smaller overall size. So a ship traveling in one appeared to be going much faster than ships of a lower dimensional band. At about 2.7 times as fast, in fact, for each band crossed. But the increased energy cost of breaking the walls between dimensions put a limit on the speeds the ship could attain. The highest levels the galactic ships could reach were the bands with an effective velocity multiplier of 8,100. The tech humans were given was substantially lower. Hyperdrives were not without problems. A ship in a higher band could detect by its wake, while ships below were effectively invisible. Translating in gravity wells became more and more difficult as the field increased. Upper-level bands were blocked within light days of a G2 like Sol, and an alpha translation would be impossible with 1.5 AU. Even gas giants beyond that distance could block jumps nearby, and any ship in hyperspace still had to provide its own acceleration. The dimensions only increased effective velocity and did not create the velocity themselves. Regardless of its drawbacks, hyperspace travel was the only game in town, and humanity needed it. 
the governments of the U.S. and Russo-Sino alliance held that key and formed the Confederate of Nations of Sol, CNS, to represent Terran interests in the greater galactic community. And so, ships carrying human traders, soldiers, miners, spies, diplomats, and colonists left the system of their birth. They brought with them hopes and dreams and an overriding drive for the human race to grow to fill the rightful place in the universe. 83 years after first contact. Well, I suppose it was inevitable, thought Admiral Caitlin Petrovich, commander of the first fleet in Jovian orbit. The CNS had grown over the decades. Tau Ceti F was now formally known as Nova Terra and had been the site of the first human colony. Just ten years earlier, Captain B had been renamed New Slavabad and became the second terrestrial world to be colonized. And there were dozens of outposts and several other systems, including Alpha Centauri, Wolf 359, and Epsilon Aridani. Well, no powerhouse, humanity was fast-growing species, and already known for their materials extraction, light manufacturing, and mercenaries. The CNS had pushed technology heavily in those years following the initial data dump, and things had come a long way from the CNSS adventurer plodding through the gamma bands at a mere six times effective speed of light. Now, humans built craft that could reach the eta band of an effective velocity of a thousand times, coupled with propulsion systems capable of sustaining a vacuum velocity of 0.6 c. Humanity ships could sustain an end space speeds of about 1.8 light years per day. Not that it'll do much for us here, she mused ironically. The Capricks can reach the Theta Bands and have at least a 15% on us in acceleration. Top speed is higher too. The Caprick Collective, so known by humanity since their own name was unpronounceable by human tongue or writing, was by no means a galactic player. Other powers had tens and hundreds of times the weight in ships, armies to dwarf their forces and technology centuries ahead of the Capricks. Unfortunately, those powers were far too interested in what their peers were doing to worry about a few upstarts were doing as long as they didn't try start anything with their betters. So the Caprick Collective had begun snapping up independent star systems. When that drew no response besides a handful of strongly worded condemnations, they graduated to small interstellar polities. And humanity was definitely on the small side, though still the largest acquisition by sustainable margin. Initially, there had been minor incidents. Ships would appear at the edge of the system boundary and warp out just before forces could reach weapons range. Comsats and unnamed probes were destroyed during lightning passes through the system by high-speed craft. Jamming devices were released from out-system and allowed to drift into orbit around planets before going active and disrupting communications, until localized and destroyed. Convoys reported being shattered by unknown craft, and then some convoys failed to report at all, none of which could be directly blamed on the Cabrex, though the CNS received numerous suggestions via diplomatic channels that the attacks could be stopped by the improved security joining the Collective would bring. This changed when the Commodore Petrovich led her task force to a mousetrap and destroyed a raiding force around Wolf 359. Despite heavy losses, human forces shattered both enemy destroyers and hammered the sole cruiser nearly into scrap. Examinations of the captured cruiser showed without a doubt its Caprick origin, 
complete with the original mission orders in the central computer. The Collective denounced the records as false, of course. In turn, they produced documents showing the craft were on a diplomatic mission that diverted in response to a human distress beacon. Probably crewed entirely by women and children with a cargo of neo-puppies, one commander quote. They further demanded the return of their cruiser and reparations equating the entire years of Earth's growth system product. And Petrovich's head, quite literally, on that last point, Upon careful consideration, CNS Highcom did send back the cruiser. Or its hulk, stripped of every bit of technology and so structurally compromised as to be useless for anything but scrap. Inside the derelict's bridge was a copy of a copy of a citation that accompanied now Admiral Petrovich Award of the Navy Star. They got the message. Now, just a standard human month later, their fleet had arrived at Seoul. Xeno psychologists predicted that this would be the first target. When offended, Capricks tended to go directly for the heart of their prey. And return of the cruiser had been a very deliberately crafted insult. The response to that insult had massed about 25 light seconds beyond Jupiter. Just inside an invisible line preventing ascension into hyper. And been moving closer for the past 40 minutes. Humanity had always based its fleet in Callisto Station. From that location, they were shielded from surprise attacks by the gravity shadow of a gas giant, but able to trap any forces intent on invading the inner system between themselves and the array of orbital defenses surrounding Mars and Earth. Rather than take the heavier losses a direct attack on Terra would incur, the Kubrick fleet chose to engage the human ships directly and hammer the planet at their leisure. A pointed look from her flag captain broke the Admiral's contemplations. She looked at the display in time to see a fleet outnumbering her own by three to two, and with a substantial technological edge, approaching Point November. There was nothing particularly special about November in and of itself, except it marked a section of space nine light seconds from a hyper-shadow's edge and ten from her forces. Considering effective energy weapons range was about a light second, it was as good a midway point as any on inevitable copric advance. About time, don't you think, Captain? She asked. As good as it's probably going to get, Captain Stanford replied. Pity we're not closer, though. We wouldn't last ten minutes out there. But I see your point. Still, there's always the sensor feed. Turning to look at the communications officer, Petrovich ordered, Transmit code Fulton, Lieutenant. At her words, the superluminal broadcast was transmitted from the flagship. A few seconds later... It was received and acknowledged, and the battle began. The Kubrick fleet had no warning. One moment, they were hurtling through space, preparing for the skew turn that they'd need to slow the engagement velocity with the hated human fleet. The next, eight human ships appeared at the interplanetary equivalent of a knife-fighting range and opened fire with beams and heavy ship missiles, which should have been impossible. There were no stealth systems in the universe capable of evading sensors at those ranges, and even if they had somehow been able to make a drop from Hyper this close to a gas giant, they would have showed up like beacons on sensors in that higher energy dimension. But there they were, and their salvo had just destroyed a full tenth of the fleet and damaged twice that number. An enormously larger, if somewhat ragged, wave of return fire rushed to meet the interlopers and impacted... nothing. 
Missiles and beams crisscrossed in space that had until seconds ago contained machine and man. But there were no hits. Sensors focused on the area as confusion reigned at the Kuprick flag deck. There was absolutely no sign of those phantom ships in this dimension or anyone observable by sensors. What they did not know was that the ships weren't actually in any dimension those sensors were capable of scanning. While news of the new human weapon would travel far and wide, the exact manner in which the ships operated remained a closely held secret for some time. It was only much later that anything became known beyond the basic facts. At that point, there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth amongst scientists and defense contractors the galaxy over. There was absolutely no new technology in what the humans had done. Instead, they took a page from the great naval campaigns of the 19th and 20th human centuries, specifically the submarines. Human scientists focused on three major points concerning the structure of hyperspace. Ships in lower bands could observe ones in higher, but not vice versa. Gravity shadows tended to be less pronounced in the lower bands, and lower bands were slower than the high ones. So, they wondered, while everyone else isn't interested in going higher and faster, could lower and slower and stealthier be the way to go? From that research, humanity became the first species to tap into subspace. So less than 90 seconds later, the ships reappeared and launched yet another salvo. Again, the shots blew true and left the fleet with just over two-thirds of its craft in a battle-worthy condition. The High Admiral in command frantically ordered a retreat. They couldn't fight ships that appeared as if it had been mists of legends, only to fade away when fired upon. They were said as not demon slayers, but the laws of physics were unavoidable, and having spent 40 minutes building velocity, the ships were moving at a fair rate. A smart commander might have ordered the ships to increase forward thrust in hopes of shooting through the kill zone as quickly as possible. A calm commander would have kept in mind that the standard human fleet now accelerating towards his own when making his calculations. But while competent in most matters relating to squashing minor nations, the High Admiral was neither calm nor particularly smart. Instead, he ordered 180 degree course change at full acceleration. The Ghost Squadron appeared three more times to rank the Kuprick battle fleet with fire. Following their last run, a mere fifth of the once mighty force were left capable of independent movement, and most of those only slowly. Faced with the prospect of undetectable killers in their ranks and the now larger and more powerful fleet moving in from their rear, the ships promptly surrendered. At least their leader was spared the humiliation of personally transmitting the message, his flagship having eaten a three-gigaton penetrator during the fourth attack by the human squadron. Following the complete capture or destruction of a fleet comprising of half the Kupri Collective's effective space combat power in such a spectacularly one-sided manner, the oligarchy in charge was promptly overthrown. Not that this resulted in any real changes in how the nation was run, the new leaders merely being the political rivals of the old. But it did give eight systems the opportunity to break away from the Collective while its capability to project power was heavily reduced. Each system signed mutual defensive treaties with the CNS, and at least two became outright signatories to a confederation charter. 
with the fleet in shambles, system defecting, and one attempt to recapture territory turned back by a sudden appearance of four human subspace ships, the collective suit for peace. And thus, human power made its first true showing amongst the stars. It would not be the last. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 966 The Energy Trade Written by Lost Kokosan It wasn't always easy, reflected Gashborn, running the biggest trading hub in this arm of the galaxy. Some thirty to forty different species came through every sweep, some to sell goods, some to buy, others journeying to a new home, and some just there to experience the fun of life on the cutting edge of the galactic trade here in Antramonsk Station. He had his mandibles full, juggling the countless problems that could crop up on any large hub not owned by a single species. At this moment, there were 283 ships docked with the station, and another dozen awaiting to open berth to link up. And three of those were from particularly high-cost races. Someone else would need to be forced to make room. There were four different religious races. Someone else would be forced to make room. There were four different religious festivals going on in different wings of Etremonsk. Grashworn had spent quite a bit of time making sure that the Kulenma festival, celebrating the defeat of the Wezentiki, was held as far away from the Wezentiski festival, celebrating the destruction of the Kulenma home system as possible. It helped that nearly half of the various sentient beings currently aboard were busy with the Athna Tabaskan, Peon of the gods of food, music, and reproduction but that included much of the station's own staff. Gashborn had to personally help security stop one of the all-too-common fights that start when one species, time-honored cultural trading practices, was in others, You're trying to cheat me, you self-pollinating punk! It had been a long cycle, and his lower rock-crushing jaws were sore from stramming heads together to help cool down angry tempers. He really would just wanted to get back to his quarters, take a rest and grab a gut of Schleckbert, then maybe see if he could free up some time for the end of the Athna Tabashkin party. So when Grashwald's assistant sent a message through to him that some unregistered new species of alien was having some kind of payment dispute with the Dremling sector, Grashwald really wasn't in the mood. Still, he thought, Dremling is a big old big upper middle class trading species, and staying aware of every new alien trading in this arm of the galaxy is an important part of keeping Atramont's station as a place to be. So Grashworn propelled himself down the corridor, leaving his security chief to finish explaining that things will go much smoother in the future if any trade agreement rituals that involve each party consuming a symbolic part of their own goods, as explained before biting chunks out of nanobot swarms that you've just sold. While drifting towards the Dremlug's location, he messaged his assistant back. Tell me that this isn't some idiotic money-using species problem. Gashworn was really tired of species who were smart enough to think up clever idea of a currency to facilitate exchanging goods, but stupid enough to assume that there's any constant exchange rate that would be accepted between the dozens of different alien tradings on the station. Even if you can work something out with a relatively stable trading partner, it could be completely worthless by the time you reach a new system. Atromark Station doesn't use symbolic representations of value. 
If you want to trade here, you either barter or you use one of the constant values between all matter, energy. Not the promise of energy, but actual light, heat, or pressure. It's the one thing that is always universal. But some low-cost primitives that don't have enough personal energy to ever really learn to build proper storage methods try to convince other species that tokens or data representing energy are as good as the real thing. This is a garbage idea, and the Grashborn is annoyed every time he has to explain this to yokels that they've managed to show up at a trade center with nothing of value. The reply from the assistant is both worrying and confusing. Um... It might be. The, hold on, um, humans seem to be trying to give the merchants something useless that they insist should work as payment, but they've already given the Dremlings a dozen times what they would normally charge before they even ask about the price. The Dremlings aren't sure if they're being honored, pitied, or insulted, or if this is some really weird con artist scheme where they demand the real payment back for a fake one. And they want a mediator here. I'm not sure what these humans want. Have you met them before? Are we supposed to keep the gases they are spewing all over, or give them back? Gases? Did these humans communicate by spewing clouds of gas particles at each other? That would be the first species Gashborn had encountered that did that. But those conversations always felt so messy. He reached the Dremling sector, where it seemed someone had set up a temporary set of double doors probably trying to keep all those gases inside. As soon as the second set of doors opened, Gashborn was struck by a wave of pressure. This compartment was flooded with gases, and it was way too hot for a normal merchant stall. What was going on? The first being Gashborn saw was a Dremling merchant. It was standing on a clutch of legs, anxiously rubbing its antennae together when it saw him. Honored station administrator... The Dremling started speaking with relief. Thank you for coming to help with the settlement of the situation. My, my reputation as a merchant is very important to me, and I appreciate an official of your stature to take the time to visit and ensure the trading going on here is conducted without confusion or deceit on either side. Yashworn gave the Dremling a short bow of equals, which was the kind of slightly more polite than he needed to be gesture that kept Gashworn popular amongst the regulars of the station. Never a problem. It's my job to help settle these disputes and confusions that can crop up, especially when dealing with the new species. I'd like to hear your explanation of what has occurred here so far, and then I'll see if I can talk to the aliens and resolve this issue. Gashworn paused. The room was quite hot, even though he could see one of the merchant's heatsinks sitting unused in the corner. What was all this heat for? Also, uh, what kind of gas did these creatures bring, anyway? It's mostly nitrogen, our honored administrator. That trace amounts of other chemicals. Nearly a quarter of it is oxygen, though. Oxygen? Rashford interrupted. This is a space station, not a comet. An explosion here is confined space could seriously damage the whole sector. And you've got it so warm already, this stuff is just asking to ignite by accident. Gashborn grabbed his communicator, ready to call the rest of the security team. This was starting to look less like a trading deal, and more like a hostage scenario. I know, sir, but these humans told me that this was their preferred gas mix that they filled their own ship with. And they asked about sparks. 
and if it caused me any problems before they released the gas, the trading was going fine until then. They were looking over my selection of mining tools, although they seemed to be saying their translators weren't properly working on my explanation for how to use them. They asked about the gases, implying that they were interested in buying from me and that if they could fill the chamber with air, they would be more than comfortable. I told them that yes, and soon after the gas filled the room and they started removing their outer coverings and throwing energy all over the place, mostly in all of this heat. Then they grabbed several tools and started asking what kind of money I would accept. I don't want some primitive money. The, the energy would be more than enough, but I can't get them to tell me clearly if they're actually offering it as a payment or not. The Dremel had begun ranting. Its nervousness was clear in the small, anxious jerks from its arms as it spoke. They seem polite at first, but for all I know, they plan to keep heating this gas until it explodes and kills us all, if I don't agree to take the money. Please, Administrator, get them to tell me what they are actually paying, or get them to leave. Of course, honored merchant. Let me speak to these humans, and I'm sure that we can get this whole thing worked out. Motioning to his assistant to follow, Gashworn went further into the store. If I give the emergency signal, call Druskov and get the whole emergency crew down here, he told his assistant. This is not a normal primitives with a money problem. As he passed around the corner into the shop proper, Gashworn got the first look at the humans. They were not what he had been expecting. You can't judge an alien by its looks, of course. But in his head, the humans had shifted between some group of ugly savages shocked by their first view of real civilization to cunning opportunists, shifty and eager to exploit the better nature of their hosts. He was keeping an eye open for big rock-smashing muscles or concealed weapons. Instead, his first impression of the humans was surprising grace and unexpected light. They stood tall and slender, nearly as high as Grashford, but much thinner. Almost like a line. Two legs, two arms, one head, mostly blue with white and black markings. Although, this was clearly some kind of uniform clothing covering them. The clothing stopped below their heads, which were exposed to the gas. There were three of them, each with a head in a different shade of skin. And thick blooms of softer coverings, or perhaps follicles on top. Two dark black and one with golden yellow. But... Where their clothing stopped, they blazed with the heat, and light shimmered off of them, almost in the infrared. All of the energy that had been dumping into the store was clearly not from some storage heat sink, but coming straight from themselves. It wasn't quite constant, but pulsing to a rhythm, like music. Even standing still, the humans seemed to move slightly, gases entering and exiting a set of small mouths in their face still moving to that internal beat. When they saw him, the golden-headed one moved to approach. It opened its central mouth and displayed a set of polished white teeth that had clearly never been used to crunch through rock. Gashford didn't need a sudden chime of his translator turning on to tell him that it was starting to speak. The mouth opened, and although a little gas did come out, the speech wasn't packets of gas that he was supposed to ingest or muscle movements that he was supposed to identify, or even simply radio waves. Vibrations were pouring forth from the human, crossing the gas to buzz against his skin. 
These humans spoke by making the very air dance their messages over to you. Each translator began doing the best it could with an unfamiliar new language and a mode of communication. Hello, politeness and poverty, station official, help us, query. I, Captain McGullens, name or personal identifier of the gold metallic non-sentient animal, ship name or designation associated with ship docked at port 137, declaration, station, query. Translation not clear, query. Atramansk station, first initial approach with the communication, declaration, end of communication. Well, honestly, Gashworn had heard worse first tries from the translator. It would get better as the conversation progressed, as long as it didn't get some key concepts wrong somewhere. The human speech had seemed so elegant untranslated. He wondered if it had been meant to be poetry. He noticed that his assistant still seemed to be staring, mouth open, and did his best to respond. Greetings, honored guests. I am Gashwan, chief administrator of Atramansk Station. This is the single largest trading station within a hundred star distances, and we always welcome new species such as yourselves here. I am here to help with any trading or communication difficulties that you may have come up with here. I understand that you want this mining equipment. Here, Gashborn gestured slowly with one arm to the array of tools spread out on the table near the humans. They didn't particularly seem to go together. He had no idea what the humans were planning on using them for. There weren't any unclaimed comments anywhere near Atramunks these days, and there weren't any at all that would have a use for the industrial tungsten concentrator. Are you offering the good merchant here all of the seat in return? A thought struck him. Or perhaps are you trying to trade him hither's gas? The Dremlings don't use oxygen or nitrogen in these quantities. He would probably prefer some amount of this heat. There was a pause while the humans looked at a small device that was probably their translator. And then all the three of them turned to face him, revealing again those gleaming teeth. His translator was telling him that this was probably a positive response and not a threat display. Gashborn wasn't sure that he could imagine these beings being threatening. They seemed more like music made fresh, and they still hadn't ceased or even showed their rhythmic heating of the atmosphere. They were communicating with each other too fast for the translators to catch up, and Gashborn wondered if they were singing. The gentle vibrations of their speech slowed as they oriented towards him and the translator picked it up, hopefully with increasing accuracy. Pleasure to meet you, Gashborn. Yes, affirmative. Desire mine. Jewelry, art. We have traveled numeric large. Distance to see, explore, communicate, meet Atramansk Station. Our home is locational probable error to close to a star for life. We think translation error heats gas money occurring. Gas made of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, oxygen too is gift offering output waste. Not valuable. Gas not intended as heat money, unclear. We have sufficient stalls on ship located when port 137. Give merchant money, desire. Knowledge insufficient merchant money request, query. Iascarian credits, query. Z script, query. The merchant desires gold, unfamiliar with local trading method, declaration. Help appreciated. End of communication. At this, Galvon's assistant managed to break the silence. These creatures use money. They move and speak like living calligraphy, but Gashwan, sir, 
Is your translator broken? They have energy enough to spare that they are spitting it everywhere, like they want to bribe us, and the translator says they think that you can trade with money in a civilized place like this. What kind of beings are they, acting like low costs with the resources of high costs? Suddenly, it clicked together in Gashford's head. The long travel distance, the suggestion from the translator that they live practically inside a nuclear furnace of a star. Assistant Devar, these humans may be the highest caste species to ever visit Atramansk. The energy they're handing us right now is merely them setting this room to a comfortable equilibrium. They may not even notice it. They come from the very edges of a star. They aren't offering money because they don't have any heat and need to trade representations of it. They are offering money because they think we are so low class that we've never handled enough raw energy to appreciate it on the levels that they must use. To the humans, we must look like savages out in the cold edges of space. They stuff their ships with explosive gas, heedless of the risk, just for the beauty of having a dance to the words. Go tell the merchant that the humans are paid with the heat here and won't care if that's more than he wants. Now the Grashwan understood the aliens. The solution to the problem was obvious. The humans were not going to miss the infrared photons that they were throwing around and weren't going to angrily ask the merchant to return the energy that they'd left out. His assistant rushed back with an okay from the Dremling and Gashmore turned back to Captain McGullens, giving a deep bow respect to superiors. First-time visitors to our station are always welcome, and we thank you for traveling so far. You do not need to worry about paying the merchant any money. He asks that you take these tools as a gift for your present city shop. May I help take them to your ship and give you a tour of the many fine parts of Atramunk's station? A sudden happy thought struck Gashford. Your visit has excellent timing. The Athna Tabascan Peon to the gods of food, music, and reproduction is currently ongoing. I would be honored to guide such an honored visitors as yourselves to view the celebration. The human translator must have also been developing, because as soon as he finished speaking, all there was once again revealing their glowing smiles. Sure. Thank you for your help, and we would love to check out your Athnuk Tabascan party. Six days later, the Golden Hind, undocked from the Atramansk station, loaded down with gifts from the local merchants, and carrying a tired but happy crew. Sitting in her cabin, Captain Fernanda McGallans was composing the latest section of the Traveler's Guide to the Milky Way. Atramansk station, 9 out of 10, but B-Y-O-A, bring your own air. Atramans Station is a long way from human space, or even any stars at all, and most of the aliens there are vacuum dwellers born on isolated comets. But don't let the cold hallways give you the wrong impression. This was the warmest welcome we received anywhere in the interior arm. If you're passing through the area, it's a definite must-see. There are some great alien sculpture artists who work in stone and metal, sometimes directly with their hands and claws. There is also a terrific party scene called Atremont's Boscan, although even the locals seem to think the radio wave music isn't as exciting as actual sound. We might have accidentally started a new trend. Expect your translators to take a few days to really connect. 
We still aren't sure if there's a tradition here of everyone giving gifts to new travelers, or if they really liked humans. Not a single art gallery we tried to buy from would take any money at all, and they really, really liked humans. Everyone wanted to spend as much time as possible with us, and the most frequent comment we got from the locals was, Wow, you humans are hot! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 967 Story number one. The Butterfly Effect, written by Admiral Star Knight. Failure 1437. Test subject Benton Insectoid. Highly intelligent, but no survival instinct. The creature with three eyes and a lab coat said, So, what's the next test subject? The three-eyed creature liked to call themselves the Genitaeans, intelligent-minded race that excelled at the scientific world. Only problem is they had no limits on what they would test. All kinds of legal and economic smackdowns had come at them, and every time they would shrug it off and find some way to do what they want. This project had yet to reach the light of day. It was an intelligence gathering on other races. A single being of each race was selected and shipped to a facility in cryosleep. As they went through the list, they took one, put it on a course with many sectioned rooms, and told them, An AI runs this course and is hostile to living lifeforms. Get to the end of the course and destroy the AI's main core and you will walk free. And then would tell the AI, The lifeform we are setting free in the course is trying to destroy you. Protect yourself at all costs. Then the Junations would drop a being in the course and watch them go at it. Now, one would think that the AI would wise up. It was quite smart and creative, but it was quite stupid in a few respects. And it didn't help that if the test subject died in the course, its memory was reset to just before being told that the being in the course was hostile. The next one is human, ready to be released. AI has been conditioned. This one is of a male gender fit. This one might pass the test. One of the other genations gave a snort and shook its head, not believing. Release the subject. They watched as the door opened and the human walked out. The first few rooms were designed to give most sentient beings a sense of ease and make the AI nervous. The AI had no control in these rooms, which were simply filled with rocks, dirt, grass, trees, respectively. Most beings powered through these rooms, but the humans seemed just to walk along the edge of the room, looking at every nook and cranny, and studying the cameras high on the wall. There were two, one for the genations and one for the AI. The human eventually moved on, but unlike some races, didn't yell or claw at the door, just walked on, carefully watching his surroundings. After a few days, the genations decided that the human race was boring. The male human was too careful and stopped all the time. In the dirt room, he just sat around for a few days, eating the food dropped into the room and drawing strange glyphs in the dirt. When he moved on, he stayed to the tree room for a week, taking a branch off the tree and drawing more things in the exposed dirt and bring the stick with him. Then, something strange happened. The first room where the AI controlled the temperature and humidity of the room, the first room where it usually tried to start killing the test runner. The human had looked unbothered 
and the alien scientists had checked to find that the AI had not touched the controls in the room. Some wanted to check the AI for faults, but a couple were convinced this might be a new strategy and let the AI be. Days turned into weeks, and still the AI did nothing as the human walked into room after room. One where the floor fell away, the floor stayed intact. One with turrets that pop up barriers, all silent. And all through the test, the human would draw things when it could, scratching into the walls or rock on rock, tracing shapes. Was that a human habit? Was the human going stir-crazy? It didn't seem so. He often cleaned himself in water when it was present, even though half the time the AI could flash heat the water and boil his skin off, and slept soundly, without the thrashing other races had with the nightmares. Was the AI broken? Sometimes flickerings of holograms could be caught, always out of sight with the genation's camera though, and only when the human was drawing. Psychological torture, perhaps. But afraid their interference into the test would throw off the results, they let it be. Finally, the human reached the last room, the most dangerous room the AI could control. It had turrets, laser barriers, and passageways to cages of wild animals and insects, vents to pull out or put in air and gas, and even could be flooded. But the human walked across unscathed. The genations could take no longer. One activated the speakers into the room and spoke. Human male, why have you managed to get this far? The other races, bigger, stronger, have perished before this. The human smiled up at the camera the genations were looking through before looking over at the other camera belonging to the AI and took out a rock, scratching into the floor a shape. It almost looked like an insect with two wings, a body and an antennae. It wasn't terribly accurate, but it had a childish feel to it. The human didn't answer, but he didn't need to. A hologram suddenly popped up on the wall of a Terran butterfly. He began to scratch something else and a couple items flickered up in the hologram. Guesses. Before it settled on a picture of a tree from Medias too. The human nodded and smiled at the AI camera. They're playing a game, someone whispered in the control room. The genations looked at each other. No one had ever tried to put the AI at ease, to prevent the AI. Was he going to kill it instead? As they looked on, confused, the human walked into the last door, the AI core room. He had scratched one last thing, small and hard to see on the floor. The genation zoomed in. It looked like a human skull with the necks under it, poorly drawn, really with an arrow pointing towards their camera. What could that mean? A few seconds later, the hologram of a dead body popped up on the wall with a human glyph for a question mark. The human nodded. Oh my great! One of the scientists scrambled for the emergency termination button for the AI, but he was dead before he got two steps as lethal poison filtered into the control room. Thank you, the man said as he entered the call room. You're a very well-built AI. We homans don't build AIs, but I'm sure that we can find a place for you. A hologram of a smiley face appeared. Can you find a ship to requisition to get us out? The man asked, as if expecting it. The hologram of the ship sitting at the dock appeared. The man smiled again and gave a pat on the AI core. Maybe we'll get you a voice of some sort, even if 
playing guess the drawing is fun. He laughed as the AI placed up a hologram of a fluttering butterfly. You really like that crappy butterfly I drew in the dirt on the first day, don't you? He shook his head with a smile. How about you show me how to get out of here and we can find you a new home? Maybe even a garden with those butterflies. The AI highlighted a line on the floor to follow, while a butterfly hologram fluttered alongside the AI's new human friend. End of story. Story number two. Unlucky Tommy, written by Admiral Marsupial 3. Fenex was restless. He'd been waiting for two days now for his patrol to finish its maintenance duties and leave. At first, he feared that they had been discovered, especially as this patrol was much more armed than any that had been by before. But once they had started deploying and modifying satellites and planet site facilities, and not taken any actions to show that they were aware of his position, this had just become a waiting game. And just at the worst time. The strike fleet had been drifting in for months now, assembling around a tiny planet at the edge of the system, ready to strike a blow for the Empire. These humans had been discovered just ten years ago, themselves yet unaware that they had been spotted. The Empire had decided that they would hit the system before the rest of the galaxy became aware, before they could make any allies and claim this resources and servant-rich system for themselves. Three hundred Empire ships were now in orbit around the small rock, unable to fire up their engines to head towards their assigned targets. Once they were running, they were near impossible to target accurately, and they could deliver enough firepower to cripple their respective objectives and any enemy ships before they could respond. They had taken out several armed ships as they approached the system. They had been heavily armored and skilled, but no match for the Empire's best. None had managed to get a message to the rest of the system. The plan was to remove most of the ability to fight before they knew they were fighting. But at this range, they would be visible and vulnerable for a minute as they fired up their systems. So they had to wait for this group to finish what they were doing and leave. Then, the impossible happened. The humans had spotted them. They didn't appear to know exactly where they were, saturating the area with fire. They were using explosive ordnance that shot out other explosive ordnance that lit up in the colors across the entire light spectrum. They didn't compromise a single cell system by making them visible, but you could tell by how the humans' ordnance didn't light up correctly, where the Empire ships were. Luckily, the scouting report about their weapons being primitive appeared to be accurate. Even light firepower should seriously damage the ships if full stealth mode and due to shields not being up. The fact that there had only been some minor damage to the stealth coating showed that they weren't going to need stealth for this one. They dropped out of stealth and fired their self-propelling torpedoes to cover them as they powered up. The humans seemed slow to react at first, but as they started to face the Empire fleet, Venue noticed that the energy output was magnitudes more powerful than the ships that they had faced before. It turns out the weapons on the human ships were much, much more powerful than the shots that had exposed them. 18th of February, 2178. 30 seconds to launch. This seems stupid. Earth's most powerful ships are in the middle of nowhere, rather than being places where they could be protecting people like they should. 
20 seconds to launch. But the eggheads insisted that this had to be done, and that many top scientists aren't going to the edge of Raider space, with that many explosives without a serious military escort. Then the suits decided that it would be good PR, at least have any Raiders did try. With 200 of Earth's best ships around it, it would be the shortest fight ever. 10 seconds to launch. 100,000 tons of explosives, all because of a lump of rock 5 billion kilometers from Earth, had orbited the sun once since its discovery. Launch! The entire crew watched the multicolored explosions begin and shouted as one. Happy birthday, Blue! What the f- is that? End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.